And I think that that's a great life corollary too, because if you're looking like 10 moves ahead, well, you know, you make plans and God laughs. There's so many chances that you're not going to get to the 10th move, right? That your opponent's going to, some kind of circumstances, something's going to change. So in reality, I think that kind of idea of thinking about the options rather than obsessing over um, a clear plan that you have to follow to a T is another thing that you learn from Chas. Hi, it's Ranchix. The following is our conversation with Jennifer Shahadi. She is a two-time U.S. Women's Chess Champion. She's a Poker Stars Ambassador. She's also an author, speaker, and the host of The Grid, which is a great podcast. It received the award for the best poker podcast this year, and I highly recommend you check it out. This was a wide-ranging conversation. We started off by discussing Netflix series The Queen's Gambit and what made it click for the wider audience. We talked about how the games like chess and poker mold us, what we learn from these games, and what makes them beautiful. We also get into the behind the scenes of Jennifer's own podcast, talk about the underlying idea and where she's going with it. And of course, there is much more. Timestamps are in the description, so you can jump around the topics if you want to. And now, I hope you'll enjoy this conversation with Jennifer Shahadi. Jennifer, welcome to the show. It's uh, such a pleasure to have you on. Thank you so much. I'm really excited to have a nice long conversation. Right. The long conversation. That's that's pretty much what, uh, what the show is all about. I uh, recorded this week, earlier this week, I recorded a four-hour conversation with uh, David Sklansky. So wow. I, I think we're not going to go four hours today, but uh, a long conversation is, is uh, indeed on the menu. Um, I guess, you know what, let's start with the most logical place to start a conversation. Let's talk about The Queen's Gambit, the new Netflix series, uh, and we'll see where, where that leads us. Because I know you've been talking about it on the social media, and to be honest, that was the reason why I started watching it. Because, oh! Yeah, because I, I saw your messages on Twitter, and uh, you were uh, giving a lot of high praise to to the series. And I thought, well, you know what? We have a conversation coming up. I want to check out what's what's that uh, movie about. And uh, so, thank you, first of all, because it's great, really enjoyable. I'm uh, I finished four episodes so far. Really looking forward to the rest. But uh, yeah, what a movie! What a series! What are your thoughts about it uh, when it came out? And I suppose you watched the whole thing, right? Yeah, yeah, I did. Um, I well, I didn't expect it to be. I had heard about it for a while. I, I got a call from a casting director for like some advice on, um, you know, how to cast the young Beth. So I'd known about it, and there's a great Chess Life magazine story about it that I got a preview for. Um, I was in touch with Netflix, so I knew that all about this, but I did not have any idea how incredibly good it was going to be, mm. and therefore what a big impact it was going to have on chess. And also, I think the timing was really good, bizarrely enough. Um, you would think that releasing a series like the week before the most pivotal election of our a lifetime would be like an error because everybody is super distracted. But in a way, I think it's like the opposite that people were craving something really absorbing so that they could maybe stop checking their phone and updating like vote counts for maybe like one hour, you know, mm -hmm. or yeah. even a half hour, right? So uh, it, interestingly enough, like I think that actually worked in its favor and it's definitely created this um, mini chess boom 
which is actually on the heels of another chess boom because of like streaming and online chess during the pandemic. But this is kind of like the other side of it, like the glamorous side, the travel and the over the board, the beautiful, majestic chess pieces that is kind of like a constrained sculpture. Um, So that's like an art in itself. It's like all these different layers of art in the series. Um, And I think that is why it's so perfect that it's giving you this imagination of luxury and glamour. And on top of that, right now, it's really easy to go online and check out tons of resources about chess. So we're really attacking it from both angles. Um, So yeah, I loved it. I, I gave it like, I think it's almost perfect, honestly. And you know, whenever I see something or read something that's almost perfect, I think it's kind of my personality that I'm like, just like a little fixated on the one or two things that I feel like resist perfection mm-hmm. because it's like almost even more frustrating when something is that good and they just like make like one or two mistakes. I'm not, not mistakes in terms of like technical stuff, more just like in, um, in my view, uh, mistakes that could have made it even more of a masterpiece. Um, but I, I, try, I try to kind of like keep that away from Twitter because it's really easy when you criticize things on Twitter um, and you actually really like them for it to get taken out of context. Like I, I've noticed that, that Twitter is very difficult for certain types of conversations um, and, and nuance. It's really good for some, but it's not good for nuance. It's great for wit. And for training yourself to like, you know, um, speak in very clear and concise sentences, but it's bad for nuance. So, I mean, the the great things about it were from a feminist perspective, you got this view of a woman who was totally self-possessed and was completely absorbed in her passion. And even though she was, of course, beautiful and perfectly dressed with perfect makeup, she was ultimately more engrossed in the world of the mind and in fact just totally in flow and that's just a great i think image of you know female beauty that we don't usually get to see uh and the other thing i really liked about it was the chess accuracy which i think um version on the point of you know a second secondary masterpiece so like mm-hmm. the, the series itself was so brilliant but then like there was a structure of chess games that were mostly designed by Bruce Pandolfini and especially for like the climactic matches and games by Gary Kasparov. And it was so much work put into that kind of secondary text, which ends up being like this bunch of Easter eggs for people who really love chess. So Mm -hmm. those two things. And then also the avoidance of cliches. I mean, I'm, I'm very much involved in like creativity and chess and I, I love the game. I've been playing since I was a little girl, but I was just astounded by so many of the cliches that they managed to avoid. Like the fact that they don't do close-ups on the queen and like show you Beth as like the mini queen, for instance. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's fantastic that they avoided that. Um, they avoided other cliches too, like the idea of a chess player is somebody who just like thinks many, many, many moves ahead. They show you that to some extent, but it's not like the focus. Um, And I really thought all of that was very powerful. Um, Also the idea of the man as the person in the supportive role, they avoided the cliche of like the Russian villain. Mm -hmm. That was great, right? 
So, um, yeah, I, I really thought there were so many great things about it that were so fresh and so perfect for this time. Right. And even when you, you were saying about the cliches and how they avoided it, I really loved the moment. And I guess we're going to give a few spoilers to the audience, but uh, so be it. There, there won't be huge spoilers. But there was this moment where she was interviewed by uh, Life magazine or some magazine. And the journalists were asking all sorts of journalistic questions like, oh, are you losing yourself in the depth of the field or whatever? Some crap like this. And she just looked at the journalist and said, no, it's, it's just the board. It's just pieces, right? Which is, goes to show there's no, which would be an easy route for movie makers to go into this romantic idea of, you know, I'm, I'm so in love with the pieces, so, so in love with the game. It's not the game, not the board that matters. It's, it's what, what you do with it. It's the, the intellectual pursuit of the whole thing. Yeah, it's like a miniature world. Sure. Mm. I like I like that as well. What do you think how did this happen first though? Because it's it's so surprising. You said yourself like the timing seems impeccable. First of all, they came up with a movie on top of already one boom that is happening. Why is chess all of a sudden well, pretty much mainstream in some ways. Mm, well, I think it's just a lot of things coming together. Chess is a very inexpensive game. It's international. Um, Twitch and chess.com and chess24 are all kind of committed to making it as popular as possible. Then there's also been the St. Louis Chess Club in the United States who's kind of been pushing it like crazy for like 10 years before this boom even can't happen, but started planting the seeds. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, I think it's a lot of that. And, you know, it's, it's a good example of the power of competition because that's like all that competition is making the um, sites work harder to, you know, promote the game, I think. And that easy level of entry that anybody can just like sign up for an online account and start playing and practicing and the games are pretty fast and you've got like glamorous chess stars like Magnus Carlsen and, you know, in streaming you have these big personalities that kids are now looking up to, whether it's like the Botez sisters or Hikaru Nakamura. And I think that all of the different factors kind of coming together, even mm -hmm. before Queen's Gambit were, you know, really, really powerful, especially for this time with um, people stuck at home. Chess is like a perfect activity to, um, you know, pass, pass the days. Mm -hmm. What do you think... For you personally, what are some of the biggest lessons you learned from chess? Well, I think one thing you learn from chess is that you can communicate with everyone regardless of where they're from, how old they are. You know, I, that, that ability of chess to cut through the boundaries that we often see, I think, is, is really a powerful aspect of the game. I was traveling when I was, you know, 15, 16, all the way through college to, you know, um, dozens of countries to play chess and the people that I met that were from such different backgrounds, but I could connect with over the board mm -hmm. um, was a tremendous networking experience as well as just like a, you know, a, a nourishing experience, I think for your soul. So that I think is a number one lesson. 
Number two is that you can experience flow through chess in a very pure way. And even if you don't become a chess champion or a chess professional, you can kind of try to, you know, pocket that feeling and try to recall it later or try to model it later in whatever you're doing that you love. So making sure that you feel that type of um, absorption where you're not thinking about anything because you're so involved in what you're doing. Mm. There's other things too. I mean, like, I guess a big one for me, I, I try to think ones that are unobvious. And one, another big one for me is that so much of success is thinking about all the different possibilities, not thinking super far ahead. I think that a lot of non-chess players think of chess as something where you're looking five to 10 moves ahead, 20 moves ahead. But actually the most difficult part, and this is just you know a math thing, is that it's looking two moves ahead, but 10 different possibilities, right? Like that's harder. So, and, and I think that that's a great life corollary too, because if you're looking like 10 moves ahead, well, you know, you make plans and God laughs. There's so many chances that you're not going to get to the 10th move, right? That your opponent's going to, some kind of circumstances, something's going to change. So in reality, I think that kind of idea of thinking about the options rather than obsessing over um, a clear plan that you have to follow to a T is another thing that you learn from chess. And that's why, you know, when you're, when you start playing chess, the most important tactic is the double attack, um, doing two things at once, forgetting that your opponent can do two things at once to you, finding a way. And for those of you who don't play chess, it's like, I'm attacking your queen and I'm attacking your rook and you only get to make one move at a time. So yeah, I'm going to win one of them and unless you have a double defense. So that's like another, um, another thing. But as you get stronger and stronger, double attack always remains integral. But the more important tactic that you notice even the top grandmasters in the world missing is what we call an in-between move, also known as a Zwischenzug, which is the German word for it. Um, Intermediate move, it's also called sometimes. And that's like, you have this clear plan, like I take your bishop, you take it back. But somehow there's like a move that's sliced in there that you forgot about because you were just like automating. Like you forgot that, in, when you took their bishop, they could just throw in a weird check that doesn't look like it's any good. Well, this is called an in-between move, a Nerzushenzug, and it's one of the most important concepts in chess And because people miss it at all levels. And that's, again, an example of tunnel vision. You're, you're thinking, but you're not thinking about all the different possibilities. So yeah, that's a really good um, example of, I think, different things you can learn from the game. Mm. Yeah, it's interesting that you brought up the in-between move because I... I noticed myself, I'm not by any stretch imagination, I'm not a very good chess player. I'm okay. Uh, the longer the time limit, the, the better I become much like maybe in the, in, with the conversations. But, you know, put me in a bullet um, game, I, I really... And to be honest, I shouldn't be playing bullet. It's, it's not really chess. It's, uh, it's just pure waste of time. But uh, the in-between move... I believe that the lower your understanding of chess, the less likely you appreciate the beauty and find these moves. Just because it's always, as you said, the tunnel vision, when you're sort of a beginner 
or intermediate player without that much experience, you're you're sort of focusing, okay, we're attacking. Let's attack, attack, attack. We're defending. We defend, defend, defend. But to think that there's a bigger picture here. There is a need for this in-between move to stabilize things, to put good, solid foundation. That That is not an easy thing to do. No, it's not easy at all to to see them. And that's why they're they're missed at all levels of chess. I think somebody wrote once, maybe it was Jonathan Rousen, who's a great um, chess player and philosopher as well. He wrote about how an in-between move was like a joke. And I think that's, that's a really good analogy um, that it's something unexpected. that Because so many jokes are structured in that way that you're like, it, it's, it starts with like what I would say, like a rook exchange. And then you're expecting for you to take the rook back. And instead it's something totally different. And that, that is where you see like the joke in chess. It's like these in-between moves where it's like, whoa, where did that come from? I wasn't expecting that. And so in that way, maybe chess can make people funnier. Certainly the world champion is quite funny. It, it, he, I mean, yeah. I think he's blessed with it. I think it like he was born with it because in press conferences and stuff, he's just always finding some kind of like witty, witty um, response, you know, Magnus Carlsen that is. Yeah, he does. And uh, Grishuk is another funny guy. <laughs> he is. He to... is. I think it's in a slightly different way, though. He's more yeah, of like a is. character. It's a very different yeah. Way. Yeah. But um, and you know what? I actually was thinking about this question myself. Um today um the question of what does chess teach us about life and what do games in general teach us right because we learn a lot from poker we learn a lot from chess but there are some things that you can only learn from chess and can't learn from poker and vice versa so i'm I'm curious to to see your comparison but uh first i just want to to me the biggest thing from chess is learning how to lose. Basically, from the early, as as a beginner, you always you're bound to lose, and lose in such a way where you don't have an excuse. You know, you lose in Monopoly. You can always blame it on the dice. You lose in whatever. Always that 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 went well. You know, there was a chance involved there. There's no chance in chess. You lose because you clearly were not good enough. Then comes a time when you hit the realization, you know what? I made everything perfectly. I did every move the best I could. And I still lose. And then that realization of, well, maybe I just don't know enough. Maybe there's more. And in the movie, for example, that... um, that moment where she had the game, her first big game against Belkin or... Beltic? Beltic, Beltic. Against Beltic. Um, she won it. And after the game, she was talking with her mother and saying, well, I'm going over the moves, looking for weaknesses in my own play. And I don't see any. And then in, in the next episode, she meets... Um, somewhere in Cincinnati or whatever. She meets this guy with a cowboy hat who's who's this very good player. Benny. Mm-hmm. Benny. And uh, he just casually said, oh, you know what? You made a mistake there. And 
sort of the whole house of cards collapsed on her because she realized that, you know what, even though I poured over that game over and over again, and I really believe that there is not a single weakness, in fact, I should have lost the game. And to me, that's beautiful because that's one thing that we really learn from chess, which is hard to learn from anywhere else. So first of all, you learn to win and get back at it and continue. You learn to take responsibility and you learn to understand that there's more just because at this current moment, you think you know everything and you did everything right might not be the case. Yeah, always more to learn for sure. And a lot to learn from both your losses and your wins. Um, yeah, that's an important uh, concept. I, I've, been, I've talked about that for many years that, you know, in chess, a lot of people focus about how you can learn from your losses, but you can also learn from your wins and that for people who are um, particularly haunted by a loss, a specific loss, it's, it's good to know that you still need to work on your game when you're winning. And I think that obviously that's something for poker players as well. So I think that one is a corollary between chess and poker. But yeah, I agree with you. Learning to lose is um, very psychologically difficult in chess. And, you know, you're dealt so many bitter disappointments in both chess and poker. And because we create these miniature worlds where chess and poker are basically like life, Mm -hmm. it interests me that when you do poorly or you play poorly and you do poorly, you know, that convergence, of course, is always the worst. Um, And afterwards, it almost feels like a miniature death. And, you know, I wouldn't want to cheapen death and actual human tragedy, tragedy, but that that's the way the games are modeled, that they are a miniature world in that, you know, you are feeling like you're almost like a bad person if you play badly until you leave that bubble, right? And then you realize, okay, there's actually a real world in which like, I'm not a bad person because I played badly, right? Mm-hmm. Or I'm not a great person because I played well. And um, that can be very difficult for kids though to understand that, or even for grownups, it can be difficult to like kind of understand that that's the whole point. That's why we do them. Because um, if you are in this miniature world and you're able to behave with integrity um, when there's so much on the line in the miniature world, then that might mean you're going to act that way in the real world as well. And if you don't, you can work on yourself in a field where it's not really life or death. It just feels like that for a few minutes. Hmm. Jennifer, do you think that losing in chess and losing in poker are really all that similar? Um, They could be, yeah, I think so. I mean, a little different, but I think the difference is, I think they have a lot of similarities, um, but it, it's because in poker, at least for me, they have a lot of similarities for me because in poker, um, I am usually not that upset if I lose, if I played well. So I'm usually only upset about bad decisions. And particularly um, what's difficult about poker is that sometimes it's not obvious that you made a bad decision. So for players who don't want to get any better, that's great because they don't have to worry about it. For players who do want to get better, that can sometimes be difficult because you know, you don't even know whether or not to feel bad at first because you're not sure whether it was a good or a bad decision. So it's a little bit like of a, almost like a psychological torture that you're just like, 
you know, going through a hand in your head, like, did I play that well? And you maybe, maybe later you'll use a solver to assess it, but at the, in the game, you can't do that. And even if you use a solver, you know, you, you don't, if you're talking about a live game, it's not like a hundred percent clear that's going to give you the applicable results. So, uh, it's, it's different in poker because of that, because it's mm-hmm. diff- more difficult to really assess whether you played badly or not. But if you know you played badly, like you made, you don't even need to check. It's like obvious, right? For whatever reason, it's like obvious that it was like a horrible play. Um, then it's very similar to chess, I think. Yeah, I think it's similar. Interesting, because I, I never thought about it this way. To me, these two experiences are quite different. There are similarities. But I'll tell you what I find different. Um, in chess, you're exposed. The moves are on the board. Everybody knows your move. The, the set, of, the, everything is set out there for everyone to see. You can't pretend. You know, how many times have you seen somebody like, what did you fold? Oh, I, I folded like the, you know, I had nothing. Where, where, where in fact you folded like the second nuts because you somehow thought it's a good play and then you are um, ashamed to admit it and hide behind that, right? In chess, you can't hide behind anything. You are just exposed and you have to live with it. You have to live with full, taking full responsibility for your actions and either you face the truth and try to improve or you don't, but you can't hide behind this mask of, you know, oh, you didn't know my cards. Whereas in chess, there's that hurdle. And I agree that for the top players, there is really no difference because the top players would approach both games with, uh, without fooling themselves. Uh, you know, in poker, you wouldn't want to find false justification for why your play is good if you if you clearly think that it might have not been good you you're gonna go and study but then again even with the studies if we take a game of chess you can come to a pretty definitive answer whereas in poker you always have this little option of saying oh yeah you know what but i don't believe that my opponent would play these ranges that way i don't believe that this applies to my case so there's always so many possibilities for excuses in a game of poker yeah, yeah, definitely. There are a lot of possible excuses, but there's there's also the um, possibility for like it, even more pain in poker sometimes than in chess because you can converge bad play with bad results, and that's like the worst. That's where people um, that's the most emotionally difficult of all, right? And it's possible in chess too because sometimes you're playing for high stakes in chess, so. You play a bad game and it actually costs you money, but it's way rare because so many chess tournaments are not like, they don't have these top heavy structures that poker does. A lot of the time it's more flat where you get your expenses paid for and all that. So yeah, um, yeah, plenty of, plenty of similarities um, and differences. I think from the poker point of view, the biggest difference is because money is such an integral part of almost every aspect of our lives, um, you know, and how we live them and what choices we get to make. Um, it's much less abstract of a game than chess. So chess, it's like you're entering this new world where two people enter the world for a few hours if it's a classical game and then come out of it together. In poker, it's much more of like a mirror and a model for like the real world and like 
the types of financial decisions and like, you know, weaknesses and your desires and fears might be, or, you know, strengths. Mm -hmm. So I think that, that, that for me is the reason that I also like poker, even though like as a game, maybe I prefer chess, but as a model for like how you can improve your, your thinking about money and like psychology and negotiation, oh, poker is the best, right? Mm. And I mean, I know you've had Maria Konnikova on um, your podcast. So um, I think that, you know, she writes about that a lot as well. And I think that it's, it's great for people to kind of understand that. Like, I, I just read a book called The Psychology of Money. And that, that was really good. It, it was very, pretty short, but very interesting. And um, of course, you, you, you kind of feel a lot of poker lessons that intersect with basic financial lessons. Mm-hmm. Hmm. It's, it's interesting, though, that, uh, and I agree with you, poker is a perfect sort of playground for improving the other important decision-making processes in our life, right? Because like you said, it's it's less abstract. We're actually dealing with money, et cetera, et cetera. At the same time, at some point, it becomes healthy or healthier, a better approach to decouple the chip value from the actual money because, uh, well, otherwise it's it's pretty stressful and uh, that's probably not not a good idea. At least most of the top players that I know have made the distinction very, very, very clear when they're playing. They're actually not thinking in terms of, you know, oh, this was a house, this was a car, you know, oh, I just made a mistake, I misclicked, and uh, that cost me a car. That's that's a bad way to think about it. But if we come back to, because you you've mentioned. And I liked the the way you put it, the mini universe, the mini world of poker or a mini world of chess. In general, like if we think about it, chess players, the ones that really go for for the top, it's such a commitment. It's a crazy hours. So much work. And same applies to poker. So we basically get away from the conventional path of you know you you finish your education you continue on the path of education you in the same career you change your job every 5 years etc cetera, etc cetera. so basically something completely different we all claim that it teaches us something about life but then again our life is pretty different from a conventional what do you think about that like even watching this movie, you know, seeing Bath being obsessed with the tournaments and basically the tournaments, the competition, that's the life, that's the aspiration, that's what we're going for. How do you feel about, uh, how do you feel about it yourself? You mean about the privilege of being able to like play games and how like that not everybody has that luxury? Well, that's that's great that you started with the privilege because not everybody sees it as a privilege. Some some see see it as a course a curse. So I'm I'm curious, like, how do you see it yourself? That you basically were able to 
well play games for a living and and you know commit commit yourself to mastery of the games that you love well i definitely think it's a privilege i mean um you know you get to set your own schedule and there's a lot of fascinating people that you get to meet um yeah maybe sometimes people could become overly you know get stuck maybe um become overly obsessed but then not as obsessed anymore but already feel like because they are so good at something they're stuck i i notice that a lot in both chess and poker players that there's a lot of complaints about that that they maybe got really good at the game when they were young and then they just started getting like you know sweet deals to like play in tournaments and give lessons um and make some easier money and then they you know neglect their education or other types of opportunities and later kind of regret it because um you know they're they get bored or something or the money is not as good whatever the reason is so yeah that's mm-hmm. that that's all that's really hard because um of course you can recognize that you're very lucky and privileged and still be unhappy right <laughs> that i think there, that that's like a kind of distinction to make like just because you're you're fortunate um doesn't mean that you're going to also be happy um maybe by framing it as such and meditating on it like it will you know increase your happiness but not necessarily right and so yeah i think you just engagement and flow is really important and so getting stuck in a rut and doing the same thing over and over again is hard for anyone i mean mm-hmm. that's like i think the curse in some ways of like increasing specialization right that um people are not robots and they get bored so, you know, they they like to be challenged and constantly engaged. And yeah, I so I I can I to, I totally know what you mean. I can see both sides there. Um I guess I think I'm pretty lucky right now, especially that my um both of a lot of my passions seem to be like more respected than they've ever been. Um you know, in the case of chess, and not only like chess itself, but also like the work I do in chess to promote it to girls and women. Like, you know, people might see it as like kind of like a, you know, a worthy noble side project, but now like it's actually like no people are like really interested in that like feminine side of, you know, brilliance. And so um it just thinks it seems like it kind of like lifts up some of the stuff that I've just been doing for so long, right? Mm-hmm. Like in the pandemic I'm doing all these like chess classes for girls and now we're also expanding to like women's classes and um, we've been so lucky. I mean, we even had Gary Kasparov speak to our group last week oh, about wow. the Queen's Gambit, um, mm-hmm. which was which was really astonishing. Yeah. Um, he spoke to a group of girls and some women as well about why he decided to take that project on and what he thought it meant for women in chess and why he picked some of the games he did and analyzed them. So, yeah, that was that was really special. And it just, it's very, it means a lot to me, these classes, because I think that it's a difficult time for people and the ability to connect with each other over like a fun game. It's, it's really taught me a lot about education, actually. Like education is not my main thing, but I'm always involved in it. Like as both somebody who raises money for education, as somebody who does a lot of presentations at schools and events. So I, and even in poker, you know, I used to make videos for one at once and I'm also just kind of constantly fascinated about like the pedagogy around poker. Um, so yeah, this is, this whole experience really taught me a lot about that, about 
you know, educating young people mm-hmm. and how to meet the challenges of these times where we have to like do it online. Is that a conversation with the Mr. Kasparov uh, available somewhere or was it? Yeah, uh, well, it, it, you know, I actually just looked at the final edit. So it's definitely going to be up by the time this video is up. So oh, maybe fantastic. you can put it in the show yeah, notes we'll or something. definitely put it in the show notes. I'm yeah. sure a lot of people would love to hear from uh, Gary himself, especially talking about the movie, which uh, he clearly did a fantastic job. Like you said, the Pandolfini seems to have done the bulk of the work, but Kasparov definitely... Uh, put the final seal on the most important. uh, Yeah, I think Pandolfini did a lot of work training the actors also to like look like chess players, Mm -hmm. which sounds a lot easier than it is. Very difficult because the movement of the pieces with your hands, like, I mean, the hand is like such a complicated, um, you know, thing. And so, um, you know, the exact way that you hold the pieces, move it, glide it based on how many moves it's going to it's going to go, it, it seems like so second nature to chess players, but actually apparently to teach actors, it's really hard. Um, the lead actress in um, Queen's Gambit um, was, Anya Taylor-Joy was originally a dancer. And that makes perfect sense because she was able to be super attuned to like the very minute choreography in the hand. And I, I, I love when I heard that because... Um, I have a friend who's a great dancer and an artist, um, Gabrielle Revlock. And like about 10 years ago, we did a project called Hula Chess where um, she taught me how to hula hoop and I taught her how to play chess. And we combined the two in this like art installation um, that my now husband, um, you know, created with me. And uh, I was blown away by how quickly she was able to look like a real chess player, even though, you know, she didn't know how to play. I mean, she knew, Mm -hmm. basically I taught her the moves but she didn't know any strategy, but like looking at her making the moves, she just like caught on like that um, because she's a choreographer and like a modern dancer. And like, that's what they do. They're looking for like the tiny, tiny things that you do that, um, you know, make it into like a real chess master moving a rock. Mm-hmm. So yeah, that, that I think, I think Bruce did a lot of that work. At least it seemed that way from the conversation. The director was there as well. But what Gary did was, you know, like, I think very genius. He, and I've done a little bit of this in little projects that I've done over the years. So I was like super fascinated to hear this. What he did was, was he took like some uh, basically um, vague references in the book by Walter Tevis, The Queen's Gambit. So they would say like, you know, there was a queen sacrifice at the end. There was a pawn push before adjournment. So he would take that and he'd kind of compile that. There'd be like maybe three key points, like the opening, a pawn push in the middle and like a queen sacrifice at the end. And then he'd like try to do a database search with his like team and like narrow down the types of games between grandmasters that would be good fit for the series. Mm -hmm. And then once they did that, they would often improve upon the game for the series because now it was Beth Harmon playing the game and, you know, she was even better than the grandmasters in the game texts, especially, you know, with a little AI in the uh, 2020. Mm -hmm. So, um, like, that's amazing, the work that went into that. And then I think what it really shows is that also the creator, Scott Frank, had tremendous faith in um, Gary and Bruce. And that's, it's not just having people like Gary and Bruce. It's like somebody really giving a fuck that they're there. Like really, and of course, I mean, it's Gary, so it's not that surprising, but you know, the fact 
the fact that they were able to get him and they actually like, you know, hung on his, on his every word and really executed it, I think is um, kind of like a model for other creators that if you're going to get experts, you should listen to them. Um, yeah, well, absolutely. I guess <laughs> Dr. Fauci would like to hear that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Speaking of experts, actually, now, just hypothetically, if somebody were to make another poker movie, right? It's been a while since we had a, I don't even know, what, what's the last good poker movie? It has to be Molly's Game. No, oh yeah, Molly's Game. Molly's Game was good. And then there was, was especially the first half. I love the first half. And then there was Mississippi Grind, I thought, which was really good too. It wasn't very famous, but that was very good. That one. Yeah, you should check it out. Good stuff. It, got, it did really badly, but... um. You know, sometimes things just don't get much marketing, but it was really good. Kind of in similar in chess, we had a movie a few years ago called, maybe it's been six years now, Queen of Catway. Stunning, amazing movie, but also okay. just didn't get a wide wide enough release, you know? Um, almost, you know, perfect reviews, but, you know, never got that like kind of buzz treatment, you know? Mm. So who do you think could be the advisor for a poker movie? Who can be the Gary Kasparov of the poker world? Because most of the poker movies, when you watch the poker scenes, you roll your eyes and think like, well, okay, yeah. I guess it depends. See, the thing is, it seems like, I mean, I always knew that, I mean, Gary's written a lot of books, right? So it's like not, it shouldn't be shocking that he's like a, a creative genius as well. But he clearly was. Like when you hear him talk about it, like you really see that side. Um, because chess is also creative. So it, like, it kind of makes sense. But I think that's what you need. You need somebody who's like kind of like both really um, a poker legend, but also has like a creative genius to them. I mean, I would think somebody like Nick Schulman might be good, um, especially if mixed games are involved since he can kind of do any game. And he's also very creative. Um, it and then it depends, like if it's more of an online thing, you might want somebody who um, also has like a, a great history in that. Um, who would you think of? I wasn't even thinking about online at all because it's hard to imagine how can somebody make an appealing movie about an online poker. True, true. Player, so right? you're thinking There's about like, yeah, probably thinking about like live poker. Live. Yeah, I don't even know. Like, if I had to choose one, I'd probably pick uh, Ben Lamb, just because I like the guy. I think he's he would he would go for the special hands. He wouldn't go for the obvious, um, uh, like the cliche kind of things I don't yeah know. i mean maybe yeah but nick showman definitely as well but uh yeah it's funny i hope that you know if somebody makes a movie they actually do ask some of the top players to to contribute because it's always a shame to see an otherwise perfectly great movie to you know end up with a uh pretty mediocre poker hand when both players are supposed to be top class. Yeah. Yeah. I know what you mean. I mean, usually it doesn't bother me that much. I think Mississippi grind was pretty good on that, but, um, I have to rewatch it. Uh, and I don't know who consulted for it, but I, I feel like that one was pretty good. Yeah. Uh, as for what it would be about, I, I, you know, I posted a question about that on my Twitter some time ago. There's so many options. Generally, I think, um, somebody mentioned like a Phil Ivey biopic, which I thought was a pretty good idea. I think that was maybe one of my poll options. Mm -hmm. And the UV scandal. Does it scandal. have to be appealing to the wider audience? 
I think it would be, yeah. I mean, you'd obviously, maybe you would embellish things a little bit, you know, I guess it depends on like, and how exactly true to life everything has to be. Right. But um, yeah, this one was really, this was fiction, The Queen's Gambit, but it was very, it was pretty loyal to the book in a lot of ways. Um, I, I thought it was funny in a way that they were so loyal to the book because, but it made, I mean, it was, it was amazing. So I guess that, that worked out, but um, yeah, usually they seem to like, change things more right, right. then well you probably haven't read the book but i'm also doing a book club um with a uh, women adult women chess players because i guess one problem you have with grown-up chess players is that most people don't really have a time to get like way way better like they could get better like over like a year or something doing a lot of puzzles and some training but there's some people who like want to be part of the culture of chess without like you know just like studying tactics and openings three hours a day right so this is what we. This is why we formed this like Mad Women's Book Club. The idea is that there's all these women out there who want to be part of the chess culture, especially after seeing the Queen's Gambit, but don't necessarily want to like study chess all the time because they have you know families and lives and jobs. So we've got a tremendous interest in it. So I'm like really excited. It seems like we kind of hit a nerve, mm. and I wonder about how you know, poker can kind of tap into that as well. People who are interested in being part of the poker culture, but don't want to like, you know, use solvers and study all the time. Yeah, it's a tough one. And also then we always get back to the money aspect, right? It's all of a sudden no longer something you do for fun. Every Friday night with your fellow chess club members, you actually have some money at stake. And, you know, for, for some families, it's a, another issue immediately. Yeah. So. Yeah, poker's I, expensive. I mean, I think people yeah. forget that, that like there's so much of the, especially in the United States, there's so many people who are just like just getting by, um, even with like, you know, incredible work ethic. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, that kind of like squeezing of the middle class is also a squeeze on the number amount of people who can have disposable income to play poker, especially live poker. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, you know, I, and online poker, that's probably one of my favorite things about it is that it's much more inclusive in that anyone can play at any level. Um, not any level, but you can get in for like, you know, you know, playing for a couple bucks, even much less. Can't do that in a live casino, which is totally understandable because, you know, somebody needs to pay the dealers and keep yeah. the lights on. But it just, it, it is, I think that there is that just barrier to entry. And mm-hmm. even then I like to call it like the poor man's finance because you can go into poker with a few hundred bucks and still get a lot of like lessons, whether it's like online or live, whereas like it'd be much harder to get those lessons, like trying to like get into finance. But, it, mm-hmm. but that's actually a misnomer. It's actually like the, you know, person with disposable income <laughs> is a financial course, right? but not as much. So um, yeah, I think that's a great point. And it's, it's always something to be conscious of. That's why like, I get so kind of exhausted by like the women in poker debates that sometimes pop up because to me, it's just like so um, narrow. The questions are always about like, you know, uh, important things like harassment of women at the tables and like sexism, you know, verbal sexism and all that. And, 
you know, underestimating of women. Like it's usually always wrapped around those issues, which I don't think those are unimportant issues. But like, if you're actually talking about why don't more women play, then you need to look at the fact that most women are too busy to play because so much of childcare and, you know, housework and emotional labor is put on them. And they also have less wealth than men. And they also make less money per dollar than men. So it's like all of those things are just like these massive structural things that are just looking us in the face. And it's like, oh, yeah, but like, you know, she got, you know, somebody didn't think she was capable of bluffing there. Like, that's so insulting. And yeah, okay. (laughs) Which one is really stopping women from playing poker? It's like a little bit of a red herring effect. Yeah, that's right. But if we think about chess right? Because you're saying right now, a lot of women are trying to get into chess and uh, get into the chess culture, as you, as you said. First of all, I don't even know what's my question here. It's just, to me, it's, it's interesting that there is the divide to begin with. In a game like chess, I understand why, perhaps culturally, historically, but you're in the midst of all that. Maybe tell me about how you see this. First of all, the divide, you know, that we always talk about, you know, women's uh, chess, men's chess. Uh, it's always kind of separate. It's it's chess. We're not talking about boxing. Right? So what, yeah, what's everybody on? plays yeah. with the same board and pieces and usually play in the same tournaments. So that, um, but that's very difficult for like the mainstream to understand. If they hear about like a women's chess event, they kind of get very instinctively upset because they're like, oh, why is there a separate women's chess tournament? But okay, in reality, usually women play against other men because mostly men comprise in the world. So uh, there are special tournaments and events that are just for women and particularly ones for girls, which people just play because they like them. You know, I mean, I, I don't... I don't think there's any like, you know, complicated psychobabble to this. Like, you know, there, there might be a little bit, but the primary reason that people play in them is because they like them. But I think that because there's so much gaslighting of female and like the woman in our culture, and it's all like kind of passive aggressive and under the table, it's not all, some of it is quite overt, but a lot of it, because it's, it's less acceptable um, maybe than in previous eras to be overtly sexist. Um, a lot of things are just kind of like gaslighting and subtle. And like one of those is just like extreme negativity towards things that our women are doing. And like a kind of like an, not, not even intentional, like a subconscious unintentional slighting of women like uh you know for instance like suppose a a girl just won uh a women's chess championship or something like if your first question is why are there separate girls tournaments like you know that that's a little like interesting that you frame it that way because you could also ask the person why do girls enjoy playing in tournaments together so much but like we always want to phrase things negatively about women and girls in these fields because we think that there's a problem. Well, what's the problem? You know, they, they want to play with each other sometimes. And usually they want to play with, with men and everybody has a different, different caliber. Some people never don't want to play in any female tournaments and that's completely valid. Some people mostly want to play in them because that's their safe and fun space. And they like making girlfriends at tournaments. Mm -hmm. 
Um, so like, I, I just wish, wish people would like understand that whenever they frame a question, it's a kind of like polls, you know, the way you frame a question is so relevant to the answer that you're going to get. And that the way that you look at the world, mm-hmm. regardless Absolutely. of what answer you get. Yeah. Absolutely. And it's a key point that you mentioned here, which is so often overlooked that the the chess club or your local poker club or your golf club, it's a social event. So mm-hmm. you form it with the people, the like-minded people that you want to be with, right? And if it happens to be that you want a specific setting, because even it doesn't have to be chess or poker, we can even talk about, um, let's say, martial arts, right? Some people really want to go to a gym where they want to compete for a high level and and that's it let's go and uh, if there's no blood it's been a, a bad training session right but some people just want to do it for fun to hang out get get in shape you know so that's that's the divide and and it's beautiful that you know apparently this movie is inspiring people to go and seek out uh this chess culture that appeals to them it's great do you think something like this can happen to poker? Um, you mean another boom based on like some kind of like intellectual depiction of it? Well, oh, actually, let's step back here and think about it. Was it, um, what is it about this movie? The intellectual depiction of it? Because it's such a weird movie, right? Because, I mean, first of all, she's not what you think of. like as a chess player, right? Because of her behavior, because of her, you know, the, the way of life. It's not a stereotypical chess player. It doesn't mean that she's she's a rare breed and, uh, you know, but it's not a stereotypical depiction of a chess player or what it means to be a chess player. Yet it's so appealing. Yeah, I mean... Would would uh, something like a, a great new poker movie be um, or series? Yeah, there haven't. There, it's never really have been never a poker been series. series. Yeah, I know Matt Salzberg was working on one for a while. I think I think he wrote about it publicly, but that was a few years ago. Um, I believe it was maybe even before Black Friday that he was working on it, or maybe right mm-hmm. after. Um, but yeah, it's it's interesting that there's never been like a series about poker. That would be great. If there was a series that you could like really follow the characters. Absolutely. Because if you think about it, part of what makes the Queen's Gambit so interesting is is the story that the stuff is happening there. There is drama, there is action, there is weird things going on. And you can feel for the main character and you can despise her in some aspects. You know, there's emotions that it's, it has the whole thing. With poker, you don't even need to make that much up to depict a story of this sort. You know, somebody playing all sorts of games, going through all sorts of adventures, which are, you know, just combine a few stories that are out there from from things that actually happened. Put them into the movie might be might be interesting. But is it as interesting because it's almost real? 
would it be as interesting because it's almost real? Because you I mean, would I think it's just at- a big challenge. I mean, I don't think I don't think it's trivial. Like, re- think about the fact that like they ha- they assembled this incredible team, got Netflix behind it, probably mm-hmm. had a big budget for a series. I would imagine. I mean, it looked glorious. I know they filmed it in Berlin, um, and so obviously, I think I don't know how the the industry works, but I'm assuming that the people that they brought to the table were so impressive that a lot of money was released because they assumed it would do well or could do well. Um, so I, I think that's actually probably like very unlikely. Like that doesn't happen a lot with any type of series or movie, I think. Like I mentioned, you know, a couple other great movies, Queen of Catway, Mississippi Grind. They clearly did not have that marketing, um, you know, treatment um, for whatever reason. And a lot of series don't get that marketing treatment. So A, you need that. B, you need it to just... It was based on a book that was written, you know, a long time ago um, that really helped inform the script. And then you just need all these stars aligning. So I just think it's not like, obviously, if somebody could write a poker series as good as that, um, you know, it would be happening right now because there'd be so much money to be made, right? <laughs> not, not regardless of the poker boom, just from the the people making it, right? That they... They would, um, they would want to. I think it's just, a, I think it's just bloody hard, right, to have all those elements come together. Because otherwise, why are there so many series and movies that aren't like five stars, that are like four stars or something? Nobody, nobody set out to make them four stars, right, or less. It's something happened in the way that was unexpected. You know, some kind of series of failures, or I don't even say failure because that's too strong a word. But it does seem like our culture is definitely very polarized with like the content that we get, that if something is like very, very good, excellent, and has good marketing, it just goes bananas and gets into everybody's house. But a lot of things that are just the tier below that, that are very, very good, but not, you know, as A, great and B, as well marketed, just never just like kind of like explode. And I, I always find that a little sad. It seems like the social media algorithms are just like very fixated on like what the trends are. And if you write about something that's not trendy, like it's just not going to kind of get going. So they have a lot of power, you know, and it, it, it tends to create like this, this power law where the, the great content and the well-supported and well-marketed content becomes more and more and more popular. And it's just kind of like a, almost like a cutting out of the middle class. So that's why, you know, yeah, when things are left unchecked, you're going to have like super, super mega popular stuff and you're not going to have a lot in between. And um, in the case of the Queen's Gambit, it's so good and it's about my beloved game. So I'm not really complaining, but (laughs) at the same time, you got to understand there's very few slots. There's not a lot of slots Mm -hmm. for that type of success. So yeah. will poker get there one day? I think it will get there again, but who knows when? Yeah, and who knows in what light? I mean, I, yeah, I, don't, well, I don't even know. Because mm-hmm. also, if you think about it, Molly's game, the cast, I mean, come on, Idris Elba, Jessica uh, Chastain. Chastain, yeah. Yeah. Those two already. And, and then the, the rest of the, it's just incredible. And... I don't think it was hugely successful. It had reasonable success as a movie, but you know, even not 
a lot of poker players haven't watched it. A lot of my friends, uh, I've told them about the movie. They're like, no, I don't, never watched it. And it's actually based on true story. I liked it, but it was more about like, it was more glamorizing, like the entrepreneurial spirit of Molly, not the game itself. So I'm not yeah. surprised it didn't create any kind of poker boom because oh, I yeah, felt I'm like it wasn't really about, about poker. I felt like it was about the business behind private games more. Yeah, yeah. Poker was more incidental to the plot. Like Molly didn't play poker, right? Mm-hmm. So the hero of the story didn't even play poker. It's like in the Queen's Gambit, if she was like the the organizer of the, or the inventor of a new type of chess, not the actual chess player. It's very different, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's that's true. That's true. Um, Jennifer, you know what? You said nobody sets out to make a bad movie. Nobody sets out to become a bad chess player or a bad (laughs) poker player either. Let's talk about this a bit, right? Because somebody who commits their life, and and with chess usually, because that's a big difference in poker and chess. I mean, poker players, some get into the game in their teens most get right around 18 years old or or later when it's actually legal to play poker for money with chess you get into it a vast majority of um, top players they got into it really young and that's basically their life and yet if we think about it how do we measure success in chess because the elite group of players, the, the people that we've mentioned already today, right? Like the world champion, like Grischuk, like let's say the whole top 20 and then some. It's just a tiny fraction of the whole population of people playing chess. How do you, what do you think? Like what happens there? Because I happen to know a lot of People who went into chess, played junior championships, quit to go into careers and attribute much of their success in life to that early early days of chess. The, the lessons that the game taught them and what they gained from it and the experiences, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And yet there are some who seem to drag their chess career into their mid-20s, 30s, get really bored with the game, never achieve anything, and sort of a wasted opportunity of doing something else. How, how do you look at that? Yeah, that's a tricky one. Um, because some people, I guess it just depends what the options are. Because for some people, chess is a great way to make a decent living and explore the world. For some people, you're right, it could be a distraction from getting like, you know, an education in some other field and becoming even more successful. So yeah, it's, it's a really tough question because it's so individualized, um, but you're right. Um, it can both enhance a career and make somebody way more successful than they would have imagined, whether it's in chess or something else, or it could, um, you know, distract someone and be like an addiction that will prevent them. Mm-hmm. from being as successful as they could be. I think it can definitely work both ways. You're right about that. Um, it's a tough question. I don't. I think that, uh, but the good thing is, I think that the more popular chess gets, the easier it will be for people to like escape it if they want to, because chess can become even more of a calling card and a networking tool. Mm-hmm. So if somebody is tired of playing chess, ironically, 
by chess getting more popular, they might be able to transition more easily into something else just because they're going to meet more people, more successful people. So yeah, I think you see that in poker too, that it's like this networking tool. And sometimes people met, meet people in finance and or sports betting, and they end up like, you know, working with them on something else. And you'll start to see that more in chess now, I think, as it becomes more mainstream. So that'll be good for those people who feel stuck. They'll be able to kind of like branch out a little more easily. Um, but yeah, I think that I wrote recently that what if chess were about what you um, can, how, how much, I wrote recently, what if chess were more about how much you enhance your chat, your life with chess than how good you got at it. And I think that's really important because, you know, if you use chess to make your life better, then maybe you're the one who's a good chess player, not the person mm. who is obsessive, gets a little bit better, but somehow like frays into other aspects of their life and makes themselves less happy. So yeah, you just got to like monitor yourself because, you know, you want to be like happy and satisfied and, you know, more than anything, I think that what's important is the feeling of growth. I think that's one of the most important human feelings. Like I, I've struggled with growth in recent years and sometimes when you haven't grown for a while in terms of like either whether it's in any, if whether it's money or like, you know, fitness or, um, you know, success or skill level at chess, poker, whatever you're doing. Like there's so many different ways to grow, but if for some reason you're like striking out in all of them at once, that's a very bad place to be because then you might forget what it's like <laughs> to experience growth and then you get used to it. And that's terrible. You're kind of like used to like not growing and it's like, well, no wonder, you know, like I don't think people should play blitz online if they're not studying chess actively. For, they, they can if they want to just for fun. But I, I think in most part, people are not going to enjoy it. I think it's, I think it'll be a net neutral, which is bad because then it's an opportunity cost if you're not studying at all, because um, you're going to lose as many games as you win and you're not going to learn anything. And I don't, I just don't think that feels good for most people. Um, but you know, maybe I'm just extrapolating on my own experience. Uh, I'm not totally sure about that, but I, I would say that the key to anything you're doing is your own personal growth and monitoring whether you have it in some aspect of your life. Mm. What about balance, achieving balance in life? Cause so often we see, and we see it with poker and we see it with chess that, this pursuit for growth, for improvement, for perfection consumes everything. And then that's the sole focus. Yeah, that's hard. I mean, I think you have to think about balance in terms of your lifespan, not just each day. So I think that's an, a point that often gets overlooked. And maybe people are more aware of it with this pandemic because people are stuck at home. Um, so you can see this stage of life as being, you know, much more about, you know, family, meditation, um, growth in certain aspects. Now, some people have a lot of financial problems during this time, so they might not really have time to reflect on any of that. But for mm -hmm. people who are lucky enough to, you know, have either, you know, social welfare or, you know, good careers even during these times, 
it, you know, might get earmarked in your life as this time for a specific type of growth. And yet there might be other times where you're just like traveling all the time and networking and expanding that area. So yeah, I, I guess that would be one thing I would encourage people to think about with balance. To think about it in terms of like a year or a life, not just a day. Like a day doesn't have to be balanced, right? But a life should be. Yeah. And also I think a a trap that a lot of poker players and chess players fall into is that eventually you just play the game because you play the game. It's what you do. I'm a chess player. I'm a poker player. And there's no self-questioning as to is there something else I, I should be doing? Is there something else I'd rather do? Because then it's like a sunk cost thing. Oh, well, but I invested five years, 10 years, 15, 20 years of my life into this pursuit. What else is there? Am I really going to put everything aside? And you know, for a human to, for majority of us to actually just turn the page and say, well, you know what, that sunk cost, it's, it was an investment. It wasn't the cost. So let's just move on. It's such a hard step to, to make. It's one of the things I admire about Vladimir Kramnik, how he retired, uh, you know, when he realized, you know what, I'm not enjoying it as much as I, as I used to. It's time to move on. Yeah, and I think the work that he did with Alpha Zero was remarkable. But yeah, that's the thing. And I think that obviously it has a lot to do with genius and talent as well as work ethic. But it's like one of the great things about being super successful is that it allows you for more options and balance later in your life, right? Mm -hmm. So, you know, there's a lot of cliches about that, you know, to like work hard now so you can like, you know, relax later. Um, I can't remember how they're all phrased, but there's so many of them. But yeah, like if you see people like Gary and Cram- Gary Kasparov also who retired at a very young age and oh, yeah. be- decided to devote himself to politics and, um, you know, human rights and writing and general promotion. Um, like, I feel like it'd be hard to do that if you weren't super successful. Like, that's the whole point. And like, so people, like when people like Kramnik and Gary and Judith Polgar retire, everyone is... Like not me, but a lot of people in the chess world are you know, devastated and upset. I don't see it that way. Although I have to admit, Jude, it was tough because you know she was the only woman to play at the highest level tournaments, and we haven't been able to replace her. Um, but I also feel like it it's it it very much makes sense too that people would want to you know leverage this like incredible career they had into their own you know personal fulfillment and happiness, not just to repeat being really good at chess or epically good really mm. for the rest of us, you know? So I, yeah, I, um, I think it's in some ways, I think it's like happy when people do that because there's so much inertia to make you not quit something. So I feel like if somebody is, has that courage and desire, it almost uh, is great because it means that there's some kind of force inside of them that's pushing to the, themselves to something that's great. And yeah, that's, that's a good thing. Mm, absolutely. My, my hope is that, you know, more people look up to these examples for inspiration. You yeah. Know, although it's, again, it's like, it's hard because you, you can look up to it for inspiration, but there's so many people who don't feel like they have that privilege because 
First of all, it doesn't even matter how much money you have. If you're, if you have like such a legacy and reputation, like you're just going to do fine with whatever you do with names as big as that. Right. Um, and in, in, on top of that, you know, the, their earnings are probably really high because of their, their successful careers. But I think the type of person you're talking about earlier is like a poker or chess player who has had a good career, but not a great career. So might not have the privilege to just like, you know, quit and, you know, figure it out, right? Or follow their passion, as you say. So, um, yeah, I think that maybe for role models, you got to look at people who did it, but did it at a different point, who at a different point where they were like successful, but not mega successful. Yeah, right. But you see... That's that's one of the problems for somebody who is reasonably successful or thereabouts, and they feel like they're not in a position to quit because they didn't achieve it yet. That's the paradox, right? Because then they like you don't really want to go for it and achieve it, and yet you don't really want to stop and move on, right? And that's such a paradox, such a. Um, I see what you're saying. Yeah. If it's not about money, if it's just about that psychological fulfillment, what I was talking about is just on a practical level that some people might just be stuck because they're making money from this, these fields. And like, you know, they just don't know exactly how to make that somewhere else. Yeah. I find it hard to believe though, that people who are actually making money in chess and poker would struggle. I mean, on emotional level, for sure, it would struggle. Like the first time you have to put on a tie and a suit, <laughs> that's already a first step. And then obviously all the other aspects. But, you know, people who make money in these careers are very bright people. So I wouldn't be too worried about. I wouldn't maybe. Be too worried about yeah, them. maybe you're right. I don't know. On an emotional sure. level, it's definitely a hard, hard one. Right. But we've seen it over and over again. You know, people in the States, the Black Friday happened. A lot of people moved on quite successfully. It was forced upon them, but, you know. Anyway, let's let's get into another topic, which I'm very curious about. You teach chess. When somebody comes to you as a novice, as a beginner, let's say nowadays, somebody comes and says, do you know what? I've seen this wonderful movie, The Queen's Gambit, inspired me to explore chess, see if I like it. How do you make them see the beauty of the game? To be honest, I give very few private lessons because I'm just um, way too busy right now. Um, But I do enjoy it occasionally. Like sometimes I do give lessons for charity events as prizes. I mean, then I do have a couple of students just, just squeezed into my schedule. Um, but, and I have my group lessons with my girls. So that's, that's where I kind of do my like teaching and education program is via my girls and women programming, which is, you know, just part of my work at US Chess. And I, yeah, I, I think that I try to put my world view of chess into that, which is that I want people to be passionate about the game. So there's a lot of advanced material, but I also periodically try to do content that is geared towards um, a different type of brain, like creativity. We've, we had like a creativity workshop in chess with this amazing singer and songwriter, Huga, um, so where they had to kind of like, you know, come up with like different song ideas based on chess. 
Um, I did like college and chess workshops where people talk about like how to write essays for college based on like your chess career and like balancing chess and college um, and things like that, where Kenya, we do a, we do a Kenya and U.S. chess girls meet through chess work initiative where they like teach each other about each other's culture. And then they also play chess. Um, mm-hmm. And one time they were teaching us the, the pieces in Swahili and in Spanish also we do that. So that that's kind of like my mission through that. And I, I hope that I'm so busy just kind of like in the weeds and the thick of it right now. But eventually I'd really want to like kind of create a presentation of all this about like all these life skills and all this overlap. And maybe it will have an influence on other people about how to use like a beautiful game like chess to inspire people of all different types of ambition levels in chess. Mm -hmm. Um, I know that some of the girls in my class want to be great champions and some of them want to get into a better college. Some of them just want to socialize with another, with a great group of girls while playing a game that they like. Um, so yeah, there's a lot of different ways that people go to it. Um, but my goal is to figure out how I can reach like the maximum number of people and keep all of them interested and engaged at the same time. And there's a, there's a point at which it's no longer possible, right? Like if I have, you know, a chess master and a total beginner in the same group, uh, some presentations might work, but some won't. But I think people would be surprised at how much you, if you're creative and engaging and energetic, how much you can connect people. Um, And yeah, you just have to think about somebody new to chess who's watching this. Think about what do you want to get from it? Like, what, what is your goal? Do you want to understand the beauty of the game that like Beth Harmon in Queen's Gambit says that chess can be beautiful? Or do you want to beat your, your brother or your sister? Do you want to get a certain rating? Do you want to understand the history of the game and how that connects with the history of the world or the history of your country? Um, because anytime you take a small subject like chess, and you study its history, you find incredible things about general history that you wouldn't have learned otherwise. Um, it's like this reference point. That's why I like studying art history is so great because you know it gives people, students away, like something to like kind of fixate on as they're watching the centuries and decades pass by. Um, chess is the same way, that it just gives you this like steady constant so that you're not overwhelmed, right? Um, so yeah, I... I think that all that is my approach to chess education. What makes chess beautiful? There's there's a lot of interesting theories about that. I gave a lecture on that, actually. Um, well, there's a couple of theories that, uh, first of all, aesthetically, from the surface level, the fact the, the pieces themselves are beautiful and they're used by many artists to explore the constraints of beauty in the you know, eight by eight board and the, the, um, the different pieces. So sometimes people use um, like abstract objects to represent the pawns and the, and the king and the queen and the bishops, knights and rooks. And sometimes people just try to carve really beautiful knights and use really beautiful wood and colors. So there's all sorts of different perspectives on that. Many great artists of our time have created chess sets. So that's kind of like superficial beauty. And I don't mean superficial as an insult. I mean it as like surface level because it's the pieces themselves. But then there's also the beauty of a chess move, like a chess game. And there's a couple of different theories for that. Like some 
one theory is that um, chess moves are beautiful for like a few different criteria. One being like depth. So, you know, how deep is the move? Like how many moves ahead is it? How difficult is it to see? One is um, one big one, which I think a lot of people associate with um, chess beauty is paradox. So something that's like very surprising is often considered beautiful because it's shocking. And I think that when you get truth, that is also shocking that gives you like a sliver of beauty, right? Like you feel that feels beautiful. So for instance, a queen sacrifice that ends with like a smothered mate, um, it's difficult to see. And yet it's true because it leads to checkmate and that's truth in chess leading to checkmate, right? So because of that, you get this feeling of, you know, chess beauty. Um, And then the other one is like geometry. And by the way, somebody put this in a book called Secrets of Spectacular Chess. So um, these categories were like described and delineated there. I read that when I was a girl, actually. Um, I was really influenced by that because I was never the sharpest, quickest person. But like this kind of opened up my eyes to another side of chess. Mm -hmm. And whenever you get as absorbed in something like that, you're just going to get really good. Um, So and the fourth one is flow, which is a little harder to define, but means kind of like the the sequence of moves relate well to each other, you know? Mm-hmm. So geometry, flow, paradox, depth, those are the four categories. And I, I think that maybe some of those overlap a little bit. So maybe this is not the absolute perfect framework, but I do love the idea of like kind of creating a framework. So you can say like, why is that beautiful? And try to describe it to someone, even if they're not like the best chess player or even play it that much. Mm. What do you think in terms of, especially if we think about, well, the paradox, okay, it's much more obvious, but I'm just thinking the understanding of the beauty of the game has to be also a function of the level of the player. Because if you're not good enough to see the beauty, there is no beauty. Right. Right. I agree with that. Um, But you can maybe kind of break it down to somebody. And maybe it can entice people to get better so that they can understand that. Because it doesn't require, it depends on the position. I mean, there's a lot of beautiful chess problems that aren't that hard. And I think that's why we talked about four categories. Depth is the one that like corresponds most to difficulty. But like uh, paradox and flow and geometry are not that correlated with difficulty. They're correlated a little bit, but not not a lot. So, you know, like the beautiful checkmate with a smothered mate that, you know, um, everybody learns when they're starting out where you have a knight on h6 and you play queen g8, rook takes g8, knight f7 mate. Like that is like one of the most beautiful things in chess. Like full stop. Doesn't matter if you were the best player in the world or a completely new player, like even the best player in the world still thinks that's beautiful. Like it, it doesn't change even though it's really, really freaking easy for them um, because they had, you know, even, uh, you know, a lot of amateur players have that pattern memorized. So it's easy for them as well, mm-hmm. but it's, it's easy, but it's still beautiful. So um, that's nice that there are some things there that you don't have to be like um, in 
insane chess champion to get from. Like the ready problem is another example. Because I figure a lot of people watching this probably know chess. So they can like look up the ready problem. And the Saavedra, those two, man, those are great. I like to show those to beginners because even like a beginner can understand both of those. But not too beginner. Like they should have been playing chess for like a couple months and like definitely know about like Anpasan and castling and, you know, maybe know a little bit about um, like how to checkmate with the queen, something like that. Like they could be playing chess for like two, three months and you could show them both of those extraordinary positions. It's mm. very interesting. You know, I've never heard about the concept of these four um, categories for evaluating the beauty of, of chess and makes so much sense. And uh, I know from personal experience, you know, the first aha moment when you realize just how beautiful this can be was a big drive for me to, to start or keep improving. When you realize that there's aesthetics to this, there, there's the beauty. Do you think pursuit of a beautiful game is a productive quality, a good quality to have for a, for a chess player? Oh yeah, absolutely. I think it, it correlates very strongly with success. Now, it, sometimes it, 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 it becomes a problem and you see this with a lot of great players, but usually not the greatest. You see this with a lot of great players. They love chess and they love the beauty of the game. They get into a lot of time pressure. Mm -hmm. So sometimes there's a negative correlation between being a good practical player and being in love with the game. Um, and I think you can see that in poker as well, that people sometimes are, you know, obsessed with making correct decisions and therefore, and maybe they are, they love equilibrium play and they find that, you know, beautiful. Um, maybe that's an exaggeration, but you see what I'm saying? There is some correlation that Absolutely. practical play, I think it comes more easily to poker players than chess players, but there is, it's, it is incredibly important to success and sometimes it's hard it's hard for mm -hmm. people to be like i love this position and i'm fascinated by it but i need to make a decision in two minutes because it's not important enough to justify that is a very difficult thing for somebody who comes from a more artistic point of view to do like that was me i, I found that very hard if i was fascinated by a position i wanted to keep looking at it mm -hmm. you know and it's funny because my brother is a great poker player and a great chess player and he said at some he's gone through stages of interest in both games like um he played online poker for many years was a you know well-known two plus two poster and sit and go theorist um but for a while he like was doing both. He was doing poker and chess. And he told me that one of the things he noticed when he came back to chess after like a long time in poker was how much more practical he was. And so like that example I gave about like, this is a fascinating position, but if I make a decision here two minutes, I'm going to have an hour left for the rest of the game where the real critical decisions are going to be. He said he was just much sharper with making those types of decisions. And I thought that was really interesting. And that's how like mm. that poker career helped him with chess. Mm. And it's also such, an, such a great lesson for life that, that both games sort of um, force on us that this need to make the decisions within a specific allocated time frame. That's right, that you have to make a decision. Not making a decision is a decision. My friend Nell is a 
decision coach, actually. Um, okay. And she's also a writer. So she's an author and a decision coach. And that is one of her very um, prominent lines, which I feel like is also something that Maria Konnikova has written about, Annie Duke's mm-hmm. written about, that you know you have to realize that not deciding something is deciding. And if you think of things that way, then you can become much more de- decisive and deliberate about your life rather than just kind of like floating along. Right. Going with the flow. And even from like the very practical perspective uh, from within the games, right? As you said, in some positions, it, it makes no sense to invest more than two minutes into the decision. And in poker, I feel like, and I see it with a lot of my students and, you know, people in general that I talk poker with, because of the solvers, because of the abundance information that we have nowadays, people seem to forget, well, a lot of people, let's put it this way, a lot of people seem to forget that you still only have a few seconds for that decision. So whatever information you're trying to gather from from the solvers and the depth of knowledge you're trying to get out of it, are you going to be able to apply it in in those two, three seconds? And memorization, especially in, in my game in Potlim Damaha, memorization is not really a thing. You're not capable of remembering so many things. So distilling ideas into the very basic, the core principles, the first principles, so to say, that should be the pursuit. That that's your task when you're studying. Whereas we sort of decouple actual game from the study process. A lot of people seem to do it. And just go really deep. But you don't have enough time. Yeah, I agree with that completely. I mean, I think like whenever I used to use solvers, I would always have like a Google Doc or Notepad open where I would like write. Because I felt like if I didn't write things, it was just completely impossible to retain any patterns. Mm -hmm. Um, And most of the great players I've had on my podcast, Grid, kind of like echo that, that it's all about pattern recognition, not memorization. Um, whether it's like, you know, Chris Crock or um, Dan DeVoris or Michael Acevedo, it, it seems like it's a pattern that comes up again and again. I mean, I mean a, a line that comes up again and again that you shouldn't try too hard to memorize things, maybe pre-flop ranges, but because, you know, that is like a, a more constrained um, set of well, things memorized because that's yeah. that's something that is there are clear boundaries to it it's not an infinite pool of information yeah. you just basically that's it you know memorize that and for holdem uh how hard is it really right for plo well, it's slightly then, more difficult but i mean even then like if it's just opening range i guess if it's just like literally opening ranges but if it's also like three bet ranges and defending ranges, then you have to account for all the different sizes. So technically still, that could I'd be nearly te- te- Technically it's too. still not that difficult. I mean, if, if that's your livelihood, if that's your career, you can't even go as far as memorize those things, then I mean, come on. Right? Well, yeah, And maybe, I don't mean like to perfection. Not that's that what somebody's I mean. okay. going to yeah. test you on that, that, you know, oh, no, you said this, this and you're opening 100%, but it's in fact only 85% of the time. Exactly, like, exactly. Get out of here, right? Yeah, but, yeah. Yeah, I see. I definitely see what you're saying. And in that way, I feel like p- poker has a corollary to chess in that like 
the end game and the opening are the two poles of the game that you can memorize. In right. in poker, of course, the end game would only be applicable to you know short stacking or you know ICM and late tournament shoving and calling off, right? So that would be like the stuff you can memorize at the end and the stuff you can memorize at the beginning is the opening ranges and everything else in between is like kind of unmemorizable, but it's all about patterns. Mm-hmm. And it's not it's not that you can't memorize any of them, but that it's because it's unrealistic, it's very difficult and you might misapply. And I, And that's one thing that I think Michael made a lot of good points about. Like, sure, you could probably memorize a strategy on certain flops, but then, like, what are you going to do with that information when the slop is, flop is slightly different? Mm-hmm. There's a good chance you're going to try to extrapolate the one that you memorized and you're going to be wrong. Now, if you're exactly. disciplined enough not to do that, then it, there's no harm in it. But it seems like that's hard a hard thing for a human to do. And I've seen that in chess, too, that I've had students who memorize an opening really well and then there's like a slight variation in what their opponent plays and they try to do the same thing that they did against the other mm-hmm. opening. And it's like, dude, if you just use your own brain, you would do better. Like you're exactly. trying to use what you memorize so that you don't waste what you memorize. But actually it's, 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 it's so sad because you're actually like sabotaging yourself by studying. That's the worst of all worlds. You, you put the work in and you, it made you play worse. That mm-hmm. really sucks. So like, just don't yeah. do that. Right. But obviously, the problem is the fault in the decision-making process. Because instead of thinking through, going through the principles of why am I doing this, you're just following the book, which in chess, clearly, you know, that's why we have variations, because somebody figured out the counter tactic to, to that standard line, for example. And that's why, why these things exist. And in chess, it's so so easy to see how important the end game is maybe the most important thing in in the whole game unless you're really outclassed in in the middle game usually you know being a better player in the end game is going to give you an advantage in poker my belief it it's it's the same yet what is the end game is not as obvious Right. There are two ways to look at it, right? Like if you're an MTT player, you could look at it as like ICM and shoving ranges, but you could also look at it as the river. Mm-hmm. So I, you know, I did, they both, they're both reasonable corollaries to make. Um, Absolutely. I agree with that. Especially like if you think about just the simplest idea of the river, right? Because the ICM, that, that's a specific for a specific tournament, like structure, et cetera, et cetera. But the river is the river in the tournaments, in the sit-and-goes, in the cash games. It's, it's, it's just the river. And that informs, it should inform your decisions on the flop and the turn. Because like you said earlier, like what do you do if you just memorize all your ranges or all your strategy for a specific flop? What if the flop is slightly different? But to go even further, what if that's exactly that flop? But did you actually memorize all the possible turn card combinations, all the possible river card combinations? What are you going to do then? Right. So you're you're making it's the same thing as as following the opening line, uh, arriving in the middle game and being completely lost because you don't know what what you were trying to achieve. You don't even know what position you were going for. What's your what's your play now? I agree with you. And I think that the river is a really useful 
street to think of in, in chess-like terms, because you're right. It's like, it might seem like if you're studying rivers, the um, information is less valuable because you don't get to the river that often, but it's the the planning and the comfort level that it gives you in previous streets. Mm -hmm. um, and Yasser Sarawan, who I do commentary with, um, always likes to talk about a saying about studying the end game. It's like, you know, cheating on an exam because you know you're going to get these questions. Right. That's <laughs> you, a beautiful way. If you study the end game, you are going to get these questions. 100%. Yeah. Oh, it's such a beautiful quote. Yeah. Um, is poker beautiful? We talked about the beauty of chess. Do you think the game of poker is a beautiful game? I do, but I think it's a little bit more of a stretch. Like I think chess is really like almost like an art itself or it can, can be considered an art. I think poker is a wonderful game, but it's uh, a little bit more like a conversation than an art, mm -hmm. but there are artistic elements to it. And I would say like, to me, the most artistic thing in poker is actually um, equilibrium. I think that's kind of beautiful in a way. It kind of has that sense of checkmate and truth to me. Mm -hmm. And so I would say that's like the closest thing in terms of like the abstract feeling of beauty. Um, what do you think? Because I think, you know, it's, uh, first of all, I don't play PLO, so I feel like, uh, or not well. <laughs> so um, I think that uh, I'm curious what a PLO player has to say about that question. Hmm. I never thought of this game as beautiful, to be honest. And I don't know if it is. The process of playing it for me is beautiful. You know, this this challenge, the mental challenge, the... Yeah, like if I look at the length of the session, the flow of the session, where is it going? What are we trying to achieve, etc. There's some beauty in that. Beauty within one particular hand, it's hard to find. Yeah. Well, I think it's in that feel sense of like perfection and truth. And like mm. it, it may you it's hard harder to say that it exists in poker, but I feel like in a single moment it, it does exist. It certainly exists in terms of like pure equilibrium play. And that's right. why sometimes when I'm studying, I get that sense of beauty, like if I was studying a chess study. But I think even like people who are exploitative players can sometimes get that feeling of complete truth, even if it's like a little bit of a mirage, even if it's only like it's not really 100% truth, but it has that feeling and like just like that flow experience of playing well and feeling like for once in a rare, you know, session, like you just have all of the answers and all of the variables are kind of like, mm. you know, clear in your head that just that, um, that mental imagery, but it's more of a stretch. I mean, you have to define mm. beauty more broadly yeah. to, um, to, uh, to define it as such. I think it, it, it's almost like more of like a flow experience and a feeling of um, puzzle solving. Um, it wouldn't be as common of a definition of beauty, but I think it is. Mm. But also, I'm trying to think about what you just said in terms of the equilibrium is beautiful. Is it? Is the equilibrium beautiful? Because I if think, we think so sometimes. Sometimes, okay. because it's, especially when it's surprising. I guess this goes back to the um, the chess, the, the paradox. The paradox, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Because sometimes maybe, maybe there's that's why more I... paradox in playing the player. 
so to say, you know, that there's more beauty in some sense when you understand the situation on, on a deeper level and, and you know, you sort of read their soul. Maybe there's yeah. more beauty in that for me because in the equilibrium, in chess, the paradox move, the paradoxical move reveals something unexpected and leads somewhere where you don't expect to arrive. With an equilibrium, if we think about what game theory achieves, well, it only achieves that you're not exploitable, that no matter what your opponent does, they can't improve their win rate against you. They can only make it worse. But it doesn't guarantee the highest win rate for you. It doesn't guarantee that you always make the correct play. You just, you know, you make the plays in such a way where it's irrelevant what the opponent does. I don't know if I see beauty in that. Yeah, maybe it's because of that chess thing, because of like the truth. Like, because I, you know, I think a lot of chess players approach poker from that kind of like truth finding um, point of view. And I find that, I find that enticing. I don't, I don't know, but I, I, poker's greatest strength is its ability to make us understand ourselves better. Oh, yeah. And, to understand other people better, I think. Mm, and then like some of this, some of this stuff is more of like, you know, icing on the cake or, you know, yeah. so- somewhat related to it. Yeah, it definitely does bring out or expose certain character traits and qualities. And uh, it's a beautiful game for that to to know yourself better and to to get to know others better as well. Um, let's talk a bit about the grid. You've mentioned your podcast. It is the it won the prize for the best poker podcast uh, this year, right? Um, yes, that's year? right. It was amazing. Right. Um, actually, I, it was early March. It was right before I did stop leaving my house, basically. Okay. <laughs> and um, no, I am leaving my house, a little, but not really doing any traveling since then. So yeah, that was really amazing. I was just happy it resonated with people because there's so many great poker podcasts. So it was a tremendous honor to win, honestly. Um, and yeah, I like that people enjoy the concept because I've had a lot of weird ideas for my life. And um, sometimes they don't really resonate with people. They resonate with me, but not necessarily with other people. And um, my husband also thought that this was a winner and ended up producing it. And I just was very stoked that other Mm -hmm. people really liked it. I mean, we put a lot of effort into it. Like, I think that um, we do a lot of editing and production because we have to like find a hand that is memorable to each guest. And then um, kind of like we use that as a window into their overall career and approach to poker. Mm-hmm. Um, so we start with a specific and then we move to the general, which I've always liked as a writer um, because it guarantees that we're, I'm going to get some stories in there. So yeah, I like, I like the concept and it, I'm glad that other people liked it too. Mm. Well, it's absolutely wonderful. I, I recently started re- uh, listening to that, and uh, now it's basically on, on my list. of. Uh, I listen to a lot of podcasts um, throughout the week, and yours is the only poker podcast so oh, far. Wow, so far, I haven't found any other that, that I'm interested in. And at first, I was also 
a bit, I don't want to say skeptical because it's, I wasn't skeptical, but I was, I don't know the word I'm looking for. But anyway, the, the idea of you're going to talk about a hand in the beginning, I found it like, really, is it going to be interesting? And it's great because it it really, because obviously people prepare and they bring the story behind the hand in, in such a beautiful way. And um, yeah, it's it's absolutely wonderful. I, I uh, was surprised just how well the idea works and uh, is and it's beautiful and also talk about beautiful it's the grid it's you know it has the geometry to it and and also the sort of growing anticipation okay so who's going to take that combination because you're running out of of the spaces on the grid at some point you know the the good ones are are taken the easy ones are taken so there's going to be more and more surprises along the way yeah, I know. It's going to be hard. It's going to be hard. I might have to branch out to PLO where like, I'll, you know, you if the hand is the two cards in your hand is right. the one like that counts. I think I'm going to do that at least once because right. it, I think it'd be a nice twist. You know, I mean, it is 169 episodes. So, But the problem is like, it, I think that it's going to be hard to get trash hands with that, right? Unless it's like heads up PLO. Like I, it, it, you, you guys are going to be probably, if I got PLO players, it would be mostly like the better hands overall, right? In terms of like memorable hands. Um, I don't know. I mean, we have all sorts of hands eventually. We don't necessarily think, I mean, I don't, it's, it's hard to say because I'm, I'm weird in that way. I never focused on hand histories. I, I don't even remember some, I mean, I probably, if I really dig into it, I, I probably remember some hands, but I, I never focused on the hand. Like very often after the session, I have no clue. I don't remember any single yeah. hand that I played. I do remember the concepts that I went through. I do remember that, oh, there was this situation where on a such and such a flop, for example, such thing happened, you know, the notes about the other players, but the cards sort of become irrelevant at some point for me. And I, I, hope that i'm not weird in, in that way that it's mostly how other plo players also oh, yeah. approach it but oh, I, yeah. I don't know a lot of players are that way a lot of players have struggled to come up with hand for it and we have to and that's like the reason why it's more difficult production wise sometimes yeah. with certain guests i'll help them look or sometimes you know there's a poker player who's a great player but they don't have a good memory so they like go through their notes so yeah it, it's it's going to be interesting as more and more of the grid gets filled out, but mm. I'm having a really good time with it. And I think like something that I see in your podcast is that it's really nice to have a space to just have longer conversations where you're not distracted, oh, especially now, because it's like, I'm not getting a chance to like go out to dinner with friends and like meet them for drinks. Um, because we've been pretty careful about um, the restrictions because we can be, you know, I feel like, we owe it. Like I work from home. I have a lot of online work. So I have the privilege to be pretty careful. And so, you know, that can help other people who can't because they need it for their livelihoods. Mm-hmm. But of course it's been a little difficult, but this t- things like doing it, recording a podcast or some other types of social games that I play online uh, are really um, an incredible solace, I think. Mm-hmm. And yeah, that, uh, my conversations are like usually 30 to an hour. I, I, actually, I have to tell you, our original concept was 30 to 35 minutes. 
Okay. But then we started booking people like, you know, and I was like, I can't do it because if, if I manage to get this guest to like carve out time from their day and I'm only going to interview them for 30 minutes, it's just too painful for me because it's like, once they get through the hand, that's going to be like two questions. So yeah, it, it kind of ended up becoming more of like 40 minutes to an hour. And I also heard somewhere that that's like a good podcast length because that's like a length of time that people like to work out. So mm-hmm. I'm going, I'm running with that. Yeah. It's definitely a good length. Um, not something I've probably only had two episodes, which are only an hour. Mostly we go, we go long. Um, that's good for people who are scheduling long workouts. Exactly. Everybody's well, got to lose he- that quarantine healthy audience, weight. Healthy audience. <laughs> yeah. But also, you know, I, I look at it from my uh, own perspective. I listen to a lot of podcasts because I'm, I'm just curious about a lot of things. And some of my favorite ones end up being these four-hour, five-hour episodes, mm-hmm. which sort of intuitively you would say, oh, five hours, who's got time for that but well i listen at very high speed so it's not the, the you know it's close to 2x the speed so if it is four hours it ends up being two hours for me and the more interesting episodes i actually do listen twice and if i find something that i didn't understand while listening at a very high speed well i just go back put the speed down listen to it again and to me, that works. And I think for a lot of people, it's the same. So it's not really an investment of two hours, three hours for the audience. Some people actually, of course, listen at, at real speed, and then it is. But in many ways, podcast is just a conversation you eavesdrop on. Mm-hmm. It's not a full focus endeavor because mostly people listen while they commute while they work out it's it's not a full focus thing so eventually i i guess it doesn't really matter if it's one hour if it's two hours but as a for you interviewing these people of course you'd like more than 35 minutes because uh it ends up being it ends up being very short although i don't know if you've heard about uh Guy Raz, I believe is his name. He has, I really don't know. How I built this. How I built this. How I built this, yeah. It's beautiful. Mm -hmm. They do, I believe, 30, 35 minutes. That's that's the sweet spot you were looking for initially. And they do a great job. There's a lot of editing there. They managed to squeeze in a a bit of ads and still produce only 35-minute episode. And it's very interesting. Yeah, yeah, I like I like that podcast. I've heard of him on other podcasts as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I think that's interesting. So let me ask, um, what are your favorite podcasts? Like top mm. three or something? Top three. Okay. Well, I've been listening to Tim Ferriss show for a mm-hmm. very long time and it's still one of the favorites. I really like the work he does. Um Lex Friedman really really interesting especially the topics that he talks about are interesting to me personally i like his his style and he talks very slowly so at 2x the speed it's just perfect he sounds like a normal good speed for me but uh so yeah lex friedman i I really enjoy his work lex friedman tim ferris and if i had to name the third it's probably a list of 
like seven that can hit the category of the third. Occasionally, it's going to be uh, Joe Rogan when he has an interesting guest, and occasionally it's going to be Cal Fessman. Very good stuff there, and there's plenty. What about you? What are your favorites? Well, you know, I like I do like some poker podcasts. I listen to. Well, the Chip Race, those, those my friends run that one. And then my um, Kara has the Heart of Poker. So I listen to those a lot when I'm, you know, working out okay. and I want an escape. Um, my friend Ben has like the premier chess podcast, the Perpetual Chess Podcast. Mm-hmm. So I try to like find episodes um, from that a lot of the time just uh, because, it, you know, it helps with my work as well. And then outside like chess and poker, I often listen to... I like I like Ezra Klein a lot, actually. Ezra Klein podcast. I find that he's. I don't. I don't think he's always. He's not. Um, he's. I like his political views. Like he definitely is. Um, pretty far on the left on a lot of issues, but he also is centrist on some issues. So I, I find him like, or more centrist on some issues. So I. I find I like listening to him because I feel like I often get both sides of issues, even if he is more on the left. So I, I really enjoy listening to his show. So the only problem is sometimes it's like too too serious. Like sometimes you want to listen to a podcast for an escape. And if you listen to like politics, it's um it's hard. I think one of the best produced podcasts I've ever heard is Planet Money. I think it has like yeah. some of the best writers in production in any podcast I've ever heard because like one time they did a poker show and like I just couldn't believe how they nailed the accuracy. They they didn't make like one mistake, it seemed. And they really kind of, they, they were, the episode was about explaining backing in poker. Okay, interesting. Yeah, and you would expect that like a lot of times these mainstream shows, they get like a few type of details wrong, but no, they really nailed it. And it's like the opposite of the gel man effect, which is that if you are a big fan of, like a newspaper or a podcast and then you hear them talk about your own industry and they just mm. mess everything up. It yeah. may, it kind of casts doubt on everything else they've done. Cause you're like, well, if they messed up my industry then maybe all this stuff I learned in the other stuff is wrong. That's so when I heard that episode about poker and like, you know, a more complicated insider world in poker of backing, I was like, well, that means that like I can maybe trust their other mm. episodes even more. And so I, I, I probably listened to that one the most. They're, they're very short though. Like mm-hmm. 20 minutes long. So, but yeah, that's probably like almost number one. Yeah. I, yeah. It's interesting that you mentioned that one. I, I like that one as well. And and in general, the shows that are, as the ones that I've mentioned are basically the long form conversation ones where it's just a conversation. Mm-hmm. The ones which are with more prep and more topical and more to the point, like true journalistic work there's an abundance of them as well. And it's, it, they're so great. Um, like the planet money that you've mentioned or the free economics radio or Malcolm Gladwell has his revisionist history show, which is uh, most of it is, is incredible. Some of it is dubious, but you know, I, I love his work in general, but speaking about your podcast, what were for you personally, some of the more, surprising things the more interesting things that you've learned from your guests hmm let me think about that for a minute well huh 
What are the interesting things I learned from my guests? Let me try to like think about who I've had on recently. Well, I recently had Linda Johnson on mm-hmm. and, you know, she is such a legendary person that that was a real privilege and hearing about like how much success she's had in the business of poker was really inspiring. And she talked about this um, first female world champion of poker, um, Vera Richmond, which was Mm -hmm. such a mind bender because, you know, the first female world champion in chess was also Vera, Vera Menchik. So that's like an astonishing coincidence. And I, I really loved hearing from her about that. And apparently, you know, Vera was not a very nice person, the poker player. Um, the chess person was a great person. Um, but uh, Linda talks about how she still supported her in terms of like getting her name in the record books because, you know, there's that integrity that you have to like do what's right regardless of like how you feel about a person. So I thought that was really valuable. Uh, Michael Acevedo. Um, oh, actually, I mean, that was just one of my favorite episodes because I like poker theory. So I love that episode. And then uh, Mandy Baker did say something that surprised me about she had a deep run at a world poker tour ages ago. Oh, God, how long was it ago? Um, Like 15 years ago, I think, in 2005. And she had a very deep run at a world poker tour in Foxwoods. And that was actually a world poker tour event that Nick Schulman won Mm -hmm. when he was very young. I think he was 21 or Maybe he was, I think he was the youngest person to win a WPT at that point. I think he was close to the minimum age. And uh, Mandy was telling me how she was like, it was particularly bitter for her to lose because she had some critical hands against Nick. And, you know, she was obviously very young at the time too, maybe a couple years older. And um, it was like, if it was going to be like a super young person, she wanted it to be her. And Mm -hmm. I love that because I feel like women too often compare themselves with each other. So the idea that she was comparing herself to a man, I think is, you know, that it makes sense because she was a very ambitious player and there weren't a lot of women playing at that time. But um, I also think it was cool like that she expressed that publicly, you know, because there's so much truth in that, especially when we're young, that people, a lot of their motivation sometimes comes from comparing themselves with their peers. And sometimes there can be some negativity into it in like the moment, but I think overall it's a positive. Mm-hmm. So like you can be friends with somebody and like, you know, jealous of their success in the short term, but in the long term, it's because you have so much respect for them. Mm. It's interesting because it is a big driver for, well, a lot of, competitive people in 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 poker in chess this comparing yourself to others and striving to something do you think it's it's a prerequisite or but what are your thoughts on that like the, i don't think it's a prerequisite i think it's some people are like that mm-hmm. and it can be difficult to deal with you got to use it and figure out how to control it and not let it like take over and hurt your relationships but also like accept that sometimes you know you wish like part of being friends with like great people um, is that sometimes when they succeed, you feel like, oh, that could have been me. And that's the point. That's why you're friends with them because you want them to do great things. And even if sometimes in some dark moments, you feel more jealous and happiness, like if you think about it more globally, it 
it's because that's why you wanted to be friends with them in many ways because you wanted them to succeed. It's just in the moment it might feel bad because you wanted it too. But I think if you take a more bigger picture look at it, you'll see that it was what you wanted all along because that's what what kind of brings you up being Mm -hmm. friends and having contacts. You do great things. Um, So give yourself some credit. And, um, I, oh, another surprising thing though, for me was Bill Perkins who was on my podcast mm-hmm. and, um, he said that he thought Dan Blazarian could beat Magnus Carlson with Magnus having 30 seconds on the clock and Dan having 10 minutes. <laughs> and I was very surprised by that. <laughs> That's a very specific example. Okay. What do you think? Does he have a chance? No. no. <laughs> <laughs> It's, it's weird. <laughs> Bill, Bill sometimes comes up with uh, interesting lines to bet on. But, well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think so. I think so. Obviously, he's, he's, got, a great, he's got a great platform. Value was zero. I know you interviewed him recently as well. Mm. I he's, loved he's his book. He's a pleasure to talk to because he oh, says what he thinks. Yeah. yeah. But, but um, yeah. <laughs> that's a good yeah. question, though. Like, what's most surprising? I, I, that's a, always a really good one, I think. Like, it's, it's um, because you kind of look at things from a different angle, you know? Mm-hmm. And that's what you should be. Like, and, you know, that's one of the reasons I did the grid. Because I feel like it's not clear whether I'll finish it. Um, my goal is to. But I think that makes it more interesting that there's some tension. Like if I told you ahead of time that I have every single grid, cell in the grid pre-planned and I know I'm going to do all the interviews, it would be a little bit less interesting. It's like a movie where you know what the ending is going to be. I think that part of the intrigue for me is I don't know how it's going to end. If I finish it, I might do some kind of like different experiments toward the end of it. Or maybe I don't finish it. I don't know. I know that one of the ideas that inspired this project was an artist in China. He was, he's, um, he was uh, studying in China at the time and he saw a lot of discarded playing cards on the ground. And so he started mm-hmm. taking like portraits of them, like photographs. Um, and I think a lot of this was like superstition that like there were high stakes games and people would just like throw out an unlucky card and like just abandon it. Okay. Um, and yeah, at some point you have this mathematical, you know, quandary that as you, um, you know, click off a lot of these hands, he was trying to get a 52 card deck. So he's trying to get all the 52 cards. And at some point, um, he had to leave China and he didn't finish the project or he stopped the project for some reason. And, you know, it's because it's, there's this, um, coupon collector's fallacy or no, it's a coupon collector's problem not fallacy, but it's like a mathematical formula to show you like how, how um, many more iterations you need as you get towards the end. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, Because I, because I, on stream once I tried to play a session where I clicked off every hand on the grid and then some mathematical people in the chat were trying to calculate on average, how long would I have to play in order to reach all 169 hands? Mm-hmm. And I was playing like sitting goes. Okay. So how long about, would it be? I think we came up with something like 12 hours. <laughs> it, we, we came up with something like 12 hours and I was playing like two six max sitting goes or maybe something at once, maybe three. I think I was mm-hmm. playing three six max sitting goes while streaming. And then the idea is that you get heads up a lot. 
So once you get heads up, you start getting all the trash hands, right? Um, so yeah, we, we came up with something like 12 to 13 hours, uh, but there's variation in that. I think that was like the average yeah, or the median. I, I can't remember which, but yeah, but it was, it was fascinating how they were like kind of attacking this math problem. And I, I, I looked it up later and they were talking about like the coupon collectors problem. Mm-hmm. And, and from the very beginning, like I did not study advanced math, but when I, worked on open face Chinese poker. And particularly I was making a lot of run at once videos for like five, six years ago. I had to learn some math by scratch because nobody was really doing math on that game yet. So Mm -hmm. um, Bill Chen, my friend helped me with some things, but there were some things that I really wanted to understand myself. So I was like looking up like, you know, college or high school math videos on like combinatorics and stuff like that. And I realized at some point I want to do that for the grid too, like with the coupon collectors thing, because anytime you can like train yourself to learn math as a grown up, it's pretty impressive because we have so many ways to avoid trying to study math, (laughs) but it's like a superpower, you know, one of my regrets in life is not studying math when I was in college. Mm. David Sklansky is going to have a book out on math. He just finished the book about... uh, probabilities it's called um something along the lines all you need to know about probability or i don't know anyway it's like he's trying uh-huh. to explain the theory the probabilities to a 12, 12 year old that's the mm-hmm. gist of it and he's doing the same with the math book it's coming out i guess next year uh, cool. and to me that was well, surprising you know the conversation with him when he is talking exactly about the thing that you were just mentioning when you were studying the math for the open face chinese uh and he just sees math everywhere because he's is very uh, logical in his thinking in general and a uh, brilliant mathematician so he always saw the math around it uh, around him and it was to his great advantage, obviously, in those days in poker. Yeah, it's a superpower, math. I mean, I think it's just mm. extraordinary, and I wish I learned it more when I was a kid. But there's also something cool about learning it when you're older, because like usually you have a very specific goal in mind. Like, um, I think um, was it in Black Swan or Fooled by Randomness? I think there was um, a section about how if there was a way to make money from learning math, suddenly yeah. <laughs> suddenly things unlocked and like, you know, the brain that you didn't think would be as suited to learning it <laughs> became very, very proficient. Yeah. Yeah. When you came up with an idea of the grid, once you started doing it, is it going the way you imagined or were there some surprising things that you didn't expect? Well, it's a little, I think it's going to be a little harder than I expected because um, I ex- I guess what it, one thing that um, was a little bit disappointing, even though I'm like, I, I'm actually thrilled with how the project is going. I mean, the fact that we won the award in the first year means like so much to me and we've gotten so many great guests, but people wanted more good hands than I expected. I was kind of hoping that like the really good players would all want like trash hands from like a heads up mm-hmm. battle. But the, but the thing is generally like hands that are interesting, like probably the most interesting hand in poker is like ace king um, in no limit hold'em because everybody has like so many hands because you're always playing ace king and you're always getting to the flop with it or, you know, get if, you know, if it's a deep stack situation, you're, you're never like folding it pre-flop really. So you have so many iterations with ace king 
or, you know, aces might maybe too. Um, people have a lot of interesting hands with aces, but I bet you, if you like collectively polled poker players with no limit, hold them like a, in, about their most interesting and memorable hand, like ace king would probably be the winner. I think. Um, so that is a challenge because only one person gets to pick ace king. And actually we haven't clicked it off yet because mm. I want it to be like a really special hand <laughs> that, um, that kind of like takes all of that into account. And, you know, you could say that about some other hands too, like ace queen or aces. I was trying to use a, um, uh, one that was um, not a, unpaired because combinatorically it's obviously much more common, mm-hmm. but um, yeah, those, those hands are just so popular and I want to avoid a situation where I have all of the pr- premium hands clicked off. And then if I get like a celebrity on who doesn't play any hands really, and you know, needs to talk about Ace King or Jax because they've only played like a few hundred hands lifetime you know, I don't want to like, w- like not be able to have that celebrity on anymore because all of them have already been clicked off. Mm-hmm. So I guess that's like a big, even bigger challenge than I thought it would be. And I think what it means for me is I just have to do more production work. So rather than like ask somebody what hand they want to cover, I need to like start finding more hands and just asking them, will you talk about this hand? Mm. Which means like, you know, looking over footage and stuff. Yeah, it means more work, but how do you actually work. choose your guests? How, how do you go about it? Well, you know what I advertised like a year and a half ago that the podcast was launching? A lot of people messaged me about their hands. So I created a spreadsheet and I just started putting in names. And like, so mm-hmm. even though we've only had like by the time this is out, maybe 50 um, or 52 episodes, I'm, I'm not sure exactly when this is coming out, but around 50. And yet there's like more like a hundred on the, on the grid in my Excel spreadsheet. So there's mm-hmm. almost, maybe not a hundred, maybe more like 80 or 90, but there's almost um, double that in terms of people who've told me they want to talk about a hand and um, we haven't just, we just haven't gotten to it yet. Mm. Who would you really want to have on? Like um, let, let's talk about the, hard to get guest or the unlikely guest like the aspiration what is your aspiration for for whatever reason not not only because they might be hard to reach but also because they might be not willing to talk or something like that i don't know do you have some aspirational goal yeah barack obama really that that's a great (laughs) choice wouldn't that be awesome no apparently he'd like to play poker he liked to play poker and i heard that he was quite tight so I have to save Ace King for him because <laughs> <laughs> I love. I'm that. sure he has an interesting I hand with Ace that. King. Oh, um, wow. I, I, yeah, I, I heard. I, I, there's been a couple articles sprinkled throughout the Times, but I can't. I think it might have been the New Yorker. It was many, many years ago um, before he was president. I think even they, they did like mm-hmm. a, there was like a paragraph about his poker skills, about how he was good, and he was on the tighter side. Um, and then, yeah. That would be amazing. And of course, the obvious answer is like Phil Ivey. Mm-hmm. That would be great because he doesn't do a lot of interviews. So he'd be amazing. As would, you know, all of the usual suspects who don't do a ton of interviews. Um, Doyle Brunson would be amazing. Oh, I, would I would imagine, imagine. I'm, you know, I have, 
I had the Tendusa off reserved for him just in case. Oh, fantastic. Yeah, I, I, I met him before and he was really nice to me. But again, he doesn't do a lot of interviews. But, you know, one of the saddest things about having a project like this is seeing people die and it's just so concrete. You realize that you have limited time in this world to connect with people. And podcasting is a way to connect with people. And mm. like, it, it's just an, it just it just breaks your heart um, when you see these legends of the game. And, you know, that's why we need to make sure not to just focus on like, what's like the highest takes, youngest, you know, richest person right now. But like all this, this work is also about, you know, preserving and recording, I think. And um, so that's one thing I, I noticed that in the beginning of the grid, I was mostly going through like my own personal contacts. So a lot of people in their like anywhere from their like late 20s to like 40s, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and I didn't have a lot of very young people or older people, right? So I, I later I've been kind of conscious of that, that I want to, you know, kind of like reach everyone not just my personal contacts. It makes it more challenging because mm-hmm. people get a lot of requests. And as much as they like to be on the grid, a lot of people want to be on the grid, but it's also a little bit more work for the guests because they also have to come up with a hand mm-hmm. and remember it and remember the details. So it's more challenging, but I, I think it's important, especially in terms of getting the older people, because this is like a, like a, in some ways, like a quilt, like 169 hand creation. And if you don't have enough historical voices in it, it's not as powerful. Mm-hmm. Oh, it's true. It's such a beautiful idea what you're building. You know, the, the um, what's the word? The fact that it's finite, the actual grid, the boundaries of it, that it's only going to be this, the 169. I find that it's really beautiful, but also it puts a lot of pressure on you because you have to give every cell justice. There's a certain requirement for the quality, which is great for your audience because they know that they can expect some really interesting stuff. So either way, yeah. tough project. Although, and so, so interesting. Thank you. I love that you like it. I like it when people see things in it and it makes them excited, like that it gives them like, you know, ideas or that they're intrigued by it. Some people are in it for the interviews, but some people are kind of interested in that overarching concept. And I kind of like that it can work in both ways. Um, Yeah, but also like, of course, some hands are less interesting than others. And that's totally okay. That's why I find like as an interviewer and you're a really good interviewer. So I'm sure you've noticed this as well as you've gotten more and more into podcasting that like my goal is to find out what a guest is most passionate about and what they have most to say about and kind of try to like steer the conversation towards that. Mm -hmm. So like if I have, you know, Chris Crock or Sam Greenlit on, they're they're so brilliant on poker theory. I want to kind of stay on that topic for a little while. I don't want to like move because I know people want to hear about it and I want to hear about it. Mm -hmm. Um, Although of course I have lots of other interesting things to talk about. Like that is like something that my guests really want to hear about. But then there's sometimes people who are professional writers and poker is like a sideline for them. You know, then we might go through the hand a little more quickly and spend the bulk of the conversation on their passion and their work. Mm-hmm. And I, I try to 
keep that in mind always, like that you're kind of like just poking around, looking for something that's going to light up somebody's brain. Mm. And it's so beautiful in a sense that there's this underlying thread of the poker hand with every single guest, but their personal interests and where the conversation goes depends on them. And it just goes to show that there's so many people playing poker, people from so many walks of life, apparently Barack Obama. I didn't know that, but it's amazing. I'm I'm so glad to find that out. Uh, And it's, that's one of the things that makes poker beautiful. We talked about beauty of poker and couldn't find a definitive answer, but maybe that's one of the beautiful things about poker. Because in chess, you have to be a certain level before you can start enjoying the game, truly enjoying the game. Whereas in poker, you can be absolute loser, still have fun. As long as you treat it as, let's say, well, you pay for playing golf, well, now you're playing for playing poker. Yeah, I agree. Wait, but the first part of what you said, that if you're a chess player, you can't, you don't think? Um, I think you can. You just have to, like, find... Maybe you can work on puzzles. I think that's important. Like one of the things I like that the training sites in chess now are doing is they have like puzzle ratings and puzzle contests because then you're just competing against yourself and you can always beat your own high score and that's an achievement um, rather than like, you know, getting like crushed by your friend who's like hundreds of points higher rated than you that might take like a year to get to to approach that. But you can always beat your score in like puzzles or end game drills and I don't know, I find it very satisfying. I mean, I I, mm-hmm. I, I, I kind of burn out on Puzzle Rush, but like many other people, I was like completely obsessed with it for a couple months. And, you know, it feels really good to beat your high score, right? Well, absolutely. Puzzles are, are amazing. Puzzles are so great. And puzzles are such a beautiful metaphor for the game as well, because I keep telling and I keep bringing up this comparison to to my students and otherwise when I'm talking about poker when if you think about it when you're solving a puzzle you might be very good at solving puzzles but when you're in the puzzle section you know you're solving a puzzle you know that hey there's a move there's this paradoxical move here somewhere I'm trying to find a little something but in game put the same situation in game you arrive at that same situation somehow naturally Alarm bells are not ringing. You're not feeling, oh, oh my God, there's, there's a tactic here. Once you're at the very high level, those alarm bells are ringing all the time because of the pattern recognition. You start seeing, okay, well, there is something. There's imbalance here. I could create something, et cetera, et cetera. But it's easy for a mediocre player to become very good at puzzle solving and learn a lot about puzzle solving from that. doesn't necessarily improve their chess all that much. It does, of course but it doesn't translate one for one. Mm-mm, not one for one. I mean, when you start out though, it's like, if you haven't done a lot of it, it'll help a lot. If you've already done a lot, it won't help as much. Mm-hmm. You know, that, that I think is a, is a key thing in chess. Like you get diminishing returns if you do the same thing over and over again. Um, mm-hmm. You know, my friend who's a great champion, Irina Crush, and even my brother, Greg Shahadi, who talks about this in terms of his US chess school, which surprises me because my brother is such a like online person. He's like, you know, really good with tech and, um, you know, different improvement tools. But both of them have reported to me that they think that 
it's important for people to occasionally switch to books, even kids, mm-hmm. you know, from like just sol- solving things online because of the fact that like your brain just like works in a different way when you're looking at it on a board and pieces or on a, a book. Mm-hmm. It's just like kind of like reframing it so that like it sticks in some part of your brain that it wasn't necessarily. Right. What do you think about solving the games or playing the games in your head? No board, no visuals at all. Yeah, I'm not a, it's hard. It's hard. It's very difficult. And the question is whether it's a good hard or if it's just like a painful hard. And I think that, I think it depends. I mean, it's definitely like every good player is going to be decent at buying full chess, but Mm -hmm. I think also think it's okay if you don't like it that much because there's so many other ways to train. Like, obviously, you want to get good enough at blindfold chess that you can read a book. And even if there's only sparse diagrams, you can, like, read it easily because that's, like, an important skill to have. Mm-hmm. But do you need to be able to play, like, 10 people at once well blindfolded? Not really. I mean, that's not that might impress your friends and it might be something that you could sell as a corporate event. But it's... I don't think it's necessarily going to be like something that will improve your game directly. Although, if we think about it from a different perspective, that it enables you to work on your game in settings where you otherwise can't, because you you can't bring out the chessboard everywhere. I mean, obviously, nowadays, we just pick out our phone and then it's all there. And so it's a sort of not really important. But back in the day, I guess the people who were able to just see a position and play the position over and over again in their head, they had an advantage because all of a sudden, you know, you're in a bus, you're on a bus, you're on a walk, wherever yeah. you are, you're, you're, you're working productively on. on That's the true. Yeah, that is true. Yeah. I mean, you definitely have to like have some blindfold skills, but it's not like you have to torture yourself if you don't like it. It's very difficult. I barely have done any blindfold exhibitions in my life. And when I did one, it was because I was pregnant. And I thought that it would be a great flyer, blindfold and pregnant. Mm-hmm. But and, wait a minute. Uh, the, the, I, I did a few, actually. I've done a few exhibitions, but not a lot. Did you also win a poker tournament when you were pregnant? Um, I came second at one. I had a good year when I was pregnant. Though, you had so. a good year by the sound of it. Yeah. Well, I mean, I had a lot of success in poker that year. Um, yeah. yeah, of course I had a good year. Actually, though, that's not in a way it's not true because my son was actually born in January 3rd. So the oh. previous year <laughs> it was also great, but it was actually like the next year when he was born. Mm-hmm. He was right on that that uh, bubble of 2016 and 2017. <laughs> the bubble. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's nice. Yeah. All right. Jennifer, you know what? I really enjoyed this. And I know that we went uh, a bit longer than we planned initially. Let's wrap it up. Just a final question, perhaps, is what is your hope with the grid? What do you hope that it brings to the poker community? Well, I hope it brings this kind of idea that um, art, and stories are not in um, contrast to um, math and analytical thinking, but it's it's all part of the same culture. So that's the idea that it, this is like a kind of emerging of the mathematical representation of all poker hands, which people think of as you know um, very analytical and sometimes they even you know, say negative things about it, like robotic or nerdy. 
But this mathematical part, which I find very beautiful, is like in concert with the human side of the game, which is like all the stories and human memories that we create from devoting ourselves to the game and its study and practice. It's mm. very interesting because it also puts the grid, the hands in a sort of perspective, adds the human aspect to it because now you can put a face on uh, on on the chart and and, and feel that eventually we're playing a game which is a social game in its beginnings. It's hard to see that this way online, but whenever you're playing, whether it's in your home game, casino with your friends, et cetera, et cetera, predominantly it's just a social endeavor. Exactly. Yeah, I love that. I love that because we can't lose either. And, you know, when I came into the project, I feel like even a year and a half ago, people were less sold on like the mathematical aspect of the game. Mm -hmm. And so the grid was also kind of like a statement that um, the analytical side was not boring or, you know, soulless. Uh, But I I think people have mostly come around on that. Like they understand that this is important for understanding poker. Um, But the other side, not losing that like social fun element, you know, and not seeing them as at war with each other, even though obviously in some contexts they could be, mm-hmm. but they don't have to be. Oh, well, once again, the, the beauty of the games and the aesthetics of it, the beauty of the math in poker, the beauty of the social aspect in poker. And once again, thank you so much for leading me on to the the Queen's Gambit. That's uh, I usually don't watch much TV. I uh, I don't even remember was the last series. Actually, I do remember the last series I watched was True Detective. The well, yeah, actually the second one. So that's years ago. Is the last time I watched a series, and now I'm in a deep dive in the Queen's Gambit. Uh, really enjoying it. Of course, I'll put all the links um, to everything uh, what we talked about today in the show notes so people can find uh, your webpage, the grid. If they're interested in the chess stuff, there's plenty of uh, things that you're doing there as well. And um, they'll be able to find that all. Great. Thank you so much. You're such a good interviewer and I'm uh, so glad that you're doing this. And yeah, um, thank you to everybody for for watching or listening. Oh, thank you. Thank you for the kind words. I, I really appreciate it. And uh, yeah, thanks for making the time. Thanks for coming on. Uh, I hope we, we have maybe another conversation with you at, at some point. I don't have the grid, so I can invite you over and over again. You know, it's yeah, maybe in two years when I finish it. <laughs> yeah, that would be. That's exactly what I'm playing because I'm gonna follow your project with huge interest now, especially now that I know that there is a slight chance, a tiny chance that uh, Barack Obama is coming on the show. <laughs> I'm gonna wait for that. It's. It would be honestly. It would be uh, a beautiful beautiful thing for poker if we think about how much good has the queen's gambit done for the chess world barack obama coming on your podcast i mean it's gotta be up there yeah i'm booking it any day now 
any day now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that would be that would be amazing. I really hope that happens. But either way, I'm going to be following and listening to your podcast, and I, I hope that the grid does fill in to the last last cell. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Check out the description. And of course, I'd highly appreciate if you subscribe, click like, spread the word about the podcast. Also, if you'd like to receive a regular newsletter with my key takeaways about each episode, go ahead and subscribe to it on runchexpodcast.com. That's R-U-N-C-H-U-K-S podcast.com. I write those myself. I take it seriously and I really enjoy the interaction with the readers. So I hope you'll sign up uh, and I'll be back for you next time. Thank you.